Hey everyone, welcome to the eighth episode of the MGL. Today I have Christian Rodriguez, a hip hop dancer, an Asian American Pacific Islander champion, and most impressively, in my humble opinion, a voice as smooth and soft as cocoa butter. He's also a country alum, and I'm really happy to have him on today's pod. Welcome, Christian. Thank you, Mike, and leave it to you to be the hype man that I did not know I needed on this uh, Monday. Thank you so much for having me. Sounds good. Uh, I want to really you know, like kick off this pod with uh, you know your love of dance and you know how you know how you got into it and like you know where did it all really start? Yeah, well, I'm <clears throat> I'm, I'm Filipino American. I grew up in a very Filipino community, and my parents uh, of their generation of Filipinos ballroom dancing and line dancing is a really big thing for them and so i grew up going to these what they call jam sessions uh, parents and other parents of my age would rent out a high school gym or a community center and they'd hire a dj usually someone also from the filipino community and they would play various types of music that would be a part of different ballroom forms or styles so cha-cha-cha, salsa, waltz, hustle, uh, disco, different line dance songs, your electric slides and your all the all the sort, right? Um, you know, as a kid, I would go only because parents don't want to hire babysitters, right? So you'd, I'd sit on the side with the other kids and I'd have my Game Boy or whatever video game that I had. Um, and I would, yeah, just play and my parents would enjoy themselves but I was just always curious about what you know what dancing was happening and so I would observe and then I would learn and then I would eventually go out onto the floor and try things like the line dances which were a group thing or I would switch off with my dad or my uncle to partner with my aunts or my mom um, and so that really for me was the foundation of of dance or kind of my entry into it it was a familial thing. It was a community thing. It was cultural really for me. Um, and, and that's where I, I just started to move was, was kind of in that space um, where I started to get into. I think it's really interesting, right? That it came from like a, I guess, semi-formal background, right? Because, you know, a lot of times a lot of people, how they got into dance was watching, you know, MTV, right? Or watching, you know, music videos, right? And so I think that's interesting that it came from like, you know, a family first, community oriented uh, place. Uh, it's just it's just a very different start. I, well, I wouldn't say a very different, but it's a unique starting path, right? At least, at least to your first exposure. Like your parents weren't like, you're going to be a ballerina, right? Like, and we're going to put you in a dance school, right? It wasn't necessarily like a, those two different paths where it's feel like it's either MTV or dance school specifically. Um, so I just wanted to comment on that. that I thought that was a very unique uh, starting position, at least for your initial love of dance. Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe not, a, not until this point that I think it was that unique, but maybe it's just because I saw other kids my age who are also there. Granted, I don't I don't know who else credits their start to dance to, you know, an older generation of Filipinos doing ballroom. But um, 
yeah, it just it just felt kind of like a common thing for kids my age in San Diego, California at that time. A, a post uh, post that when I, I getting into choreography, I was in the sixth grade and it was my uh, older cousin's uh, debutante ball. And so if you're not familiar out there um, within Latino culture, we have quinceañeras, right? Um, and I guess in American culture, there's sweet 16. And then Filipino culture, we have uh, celebrating a, a young woman turning 18 years old and kind of entering their adulthood. Uh, and that's called a debut or debutante. Um, and there are a bunch of kind of performances that would come along with that. You'd perform in a, a court, uh, a number of people learning some kind of routine. But I joined in to perform with my cousins. Our group name was The Cool Cousins, and we did a hip-hop performance. And that was my first foray into choreography. My older cousin, who was a DJ, choreographed some moves, and we practiced with the celebrant, my older female cousin, Michelle, um, and I danced with my brother and two other cousins. We were all kind of all, all children of, of kind of a set of brothers and sisters within the family. Um, and I, I, at this point, I already had loved, I, I'd loved to start moving already. Um, there's a video out there on YouTube. And if you, if you, if you, if you make me, Mike, I will, sh I will share it with you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, of me just being like thinking I'm like the coolest kid on the block, knowing how to dance and telling people like you're early or you're late or you did the wrong step. And these are my cousins. Um, but yeah, that was, that was just kind of my first foray into choreography. Uh, but I don't know. It felt cool. It felt cool to do synchronized. Right. Like, did you have people that you were like looking at? Like, how did you just pick up right on how to teach choreography? Was it just from, you know, watching your your family uh, being kind of in the ballroom and listening to how, you know, those teachers would be like, I don't know, like, you know, next step is one, two, three or whatever. Right. Like, give me a little bit of background uh, in terms of, you know, where you think that kind of came from, because it's hard for me to believe that just like it just happens like in an instant. And it, and it doesn't. Um, again, another familial thing, like actually dance it was not a, a classroom thing at all for me at the beginning. I had an aunt. Um, she's maybe 12 or 15 years older than me. Um, when she was in high school and I was in elementary school or even younger than that, she would go out to raves or parties and not raves as we know them today as like your EDC or your, um, you know, like nocturnal, but like a rave at like someone's house or a club, you know? And where people would actually dance in the club. And, and this is where a lot of dances come from, is, is the club scene or the streets, right? Uh, but she'd come home and she would teach me moves that she learned or would do at the club. And so things that I learned when I was, I don't know, south of 10 were like the wave. Like I, I, learned, I learned how to wave when I was a kid or like box things, like kind of the beginning of like tutting of like or things like that. And... I just thought it was so cool to to manipulate your body in that way that I would practice for hours in front of my mirror in my room just because I thought it was cool. And when there was a formal opportunity to to do some of that for my family in front of people with my with cousins, I was 
yeah, like let let's do this. So that's what it was. Um, and and the only reason why I mean it's choreography is because it it's set right. Like choreography versus freestyle is like this this move we're saying it's at this particular time at this particular part of the music, um, in this particular timing. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the only reason in kind of first foray into choreography is because we were choosing to prepare a routine rather than just kind of freestyling and going at it. One of the things that I think is interesting uh, when you mentioned, you know, you looked in in the mirror, right? And you were practicing the moves, right? Because one of my other friends, who's also a dancer, he told, I remember I was like in sixth grade or something like that. And he was a really, really good dancer. And I don't think he had necessarily taken any classes. And I asked him like, hey, how did you get so good at, you know, dancing, right? Like, cause he would, you know, learn all of the moves from the Backstreet Boys and sing Britney Spears, right? He was so good at it. He knew the choreography for it. And he just said, I recorded it on VHS, uh, you know, TV basically recorded that uh, copy of the choreography on VHS and just watched it and practiced it for over four to five hours a day. Right. Like, and I bring that up because it kind of reminds me of like the, the mirroring. We'll use the mirror kind of as an analogy. It's like, you're looking, you see something and then you repeat it back. In this case, it's, you know, your aunt, right. Going to the club, right. And taking those dance moves and putting it together and then coming back and showing you, right? And that's like, that was like your version of, you know, MTV, right? To a certain extent, or learning like a set of, you know, dance moves from a choreographed, you know, choreographed set, or even if it wasn't choreographed, if it was just linking it all together. Uh, I'm guessing it's like how she put it all together. And, you know, maybe it wasn't explained through words, but it was explained through uh, common movements that you would see come together. All of those things are true for, me yeah um i i don't i don't know if i would say like my me doing it in the mirror is the same as mtv because I, I i also did watch music videos uh and especially finding asian folks within within music videos dancers like uh the, there's a one if i think back to missy elliott's um work it video and um there's a asian actually a filipino girl uh who dances next to Alison Stone in that, in that music video. And I was like, whoa, like who, who's, whose cousin is that? Like, and, and, and that I was actually really big for me. I was like, oh, I really want to be in a music video. I remember telling my mom, mom, one day I'm going to be in a music video. I, I, I can hear myself saying that to her. She was like, yeah, cool. All right. I look back on it. And I think today I've, I've kind of been in music videos or she obviously didn't really believe you at that point. It it did feel like that. Um, but I, I think I, looking back on it, I think I have achieved something like that, if not more. And it's cool to think that that's happened. I do want to go back a little bit to, uh, you know, a little bit beyond the choreography and kind of into, I would, I'm assuming dance like in high school and college, right? Like, you know, you talked about, learning and teaching choreography, you know, to your cousins. And obviously that's a very kind of informal setting, but then talk to me about, you know, dance in a much more structured collaborative. And you could 
arguably say kind of competitive. And I use competitive in the, the loosest of terms, especially if you're trying to join a dance team, right? Like that's maybe the only, uh, or if you're joining a dance team or if you're, you know, on dance team competing against another dance team, right? Like that's kind of the, I think the two elements of, you know, competition uh, to a degree. So talk to me a little bit about that and, you know, how that went from informal family dance outings uh, and get togethers to more structured uh, uh, out or more structured dance types of formats. Yeah. Growing up in San Diego, there was a lot of dance. Uh, the, there were dance crews uh, formed by people who were in high school. So some of my contemporaries were on, on dance teams before they made it kind of big and, and other bigger dance teams. But for me, it started out in high school. Uh, and, and the high school scene, let's see if I can work my way back into history. Uh, uh, a big reason why the Asian American community, particularly in California, got into dance is because uh, these street forms, dance street forms were taken into um, an event called Filipino cultural nights that, that showed up at, at colleges. Right. Um, and the, it got traction. There were these groups of, of young Asian Americans, Filipinos who wanted to dance in college. Um, and, and it picked up popularity and then it traveled to different colleges. Um, and, and that college scene then influenced the high school scene. And that was kind of my entry into more formal choreographic dancing. So I joined in high school a team called Direct Input out of Montgomery High School in San Diego, California. And it was kind of like an air band slash dance team. And uh, if you're not familiar with the term air band, it's, it's kind of like a dance team that puts on a dance performance, but it's themed some kind of story. Think Cinderella, but through dance, or think um, Beauty and the Beast, but through dance, or Peter Pan, if you will. And that started to evolve. There, there were there were air band competitions in high school, but then people just wanted to dance to good music. And so dance teams would put together these different sets of different, uh, yeah, different pieces of choreography to different songs. And you would perform that set for maybe your high school assembly, or it was a high school Filipino culture night, um, or just an exhibition in your high school cafeteria, which was my first performance with direct input. And so that that's what it was. Um, but there, there was kind of always a direct line to some kind of college event or people who were influenced by the college scene. So already in high school, I'm looking forward to how, what, what the collegiate scene can provide for me in terms of dancing. When I graduated high school, I had not been dancing for a while because the group, uh, kind of fizzled out with the seniors graduated, but I really wanted to get into dance, uh, again. And, and, and that's because I, I was going to a place I was, I was moving from Southern California to the Bay area to go to school. And this is where no one knew me and I could really define what I wanted to do. And that was my, that was my kind of break into formal collegiate dancing that was competitive. I was gonna say, talk to me a little bit about, yeah, that collegiate experience and what it was like, right, to have to, let's say, compete, right, to join a dance team. Uh, and the reason why 
kind of I say this is because actually I tried to join a dance team, uh, not intentionally. I went along, you know, with someone as well, and I didn't have a dance background. And so she just wanted to do it for fun. But I realized how difficult it was to join a dance team, especially if you don't have a dance background. Like, it's not impossible. Like, there are people who have done it, but it is hard to, if you're not used to some sort of choreography, whether it's dance, martial arts, like what are the next steps? How do you memorize all the choreography in a short period of time, right? That's something where like I was not used to that pace. Um, but yeah, I just want to get your thoughts as a dancer of like, what was your first experience like joining uh, or trying out for a collegiate team and how that kind of differed from high school a bit? When I was young, before, in high school, I, att- I tried out or attempted to try out for uh, one of the prominent dance studios, youth teams. And so I, I had already had been through kind of an audition process, even though I'd never danced at a studio or I'd been a part of a formal team um, and had gone through the process of, of dancing, performing, and then being rejected. So um, I was familiar with the process going in to college, uh, but, and I think much is the case for, for many kind of collegiate dance teams at that time, which is around 2010 and into now, where you have to learn a piece of choreography or two, uh, and then you go into a round where you have to do it in groups and the judges watch you. And, uh, maybe you get called back to perform the choreography again, um, and in some cases, the dance team cares about, you know, what kind of person you are as well. So there might be an interview. I think for me, I was so jazzed to, to, to get into the scene. I, I knew what it was like. Uh, I, I saw dancers around San Diego who were doing it in high school. And I, I so badly wanted that to be me um, that I tried really hard. So there's, I, I joined Main Stacks at UC Berkeley uh, in 2010. And their audition setup was you would learn the choreography first one day, and then there would be a performance uh, day, maybe a, a week or a few days after that. And you would have a chance to link up with a group and practice the choreography and even have some creative freedom yourself to make some changes, add formations, um, and then even choreograph a piece on your own. Um, and so I was like, well, I, I, I treated this like a project. Like I have to get this done because this is something I super want to do. But I, I, I was primed for it, right? Like I had an expectation um, of what I needed to do and what was expected of me. I think if I were to go into it not being a dancer, absolutely. It's super hard. I mean, even as a dancer, there's so much pressure and you feel people watching you. Um, but for for someone who doesn't have that background, it's like, well shoot, like this is really, really hard uh, to just learn choreography alone, I think is difficult, even for a seasoned dancer. Yeah, because for me, it was, okay, they teach you one move, right? You do it, right? It's kind of like Simon Says, but it's a really long game of like Simon Says slash, oh, oh, actually, I would say it's more like Bop It, but it's just like a really extended, longer version of that. It's like you play the sound once, you you repeat the sound, right? Or you, you know, then they'll just keep doing it for 10, 15, 20, you know, more moves. And it's like, you're expected to layer on top and remember every single thing. Uh, and I think that was the hardest part. It was like, for me, 
just in that one time that I was trying it, like trying to just go through the act of remembering everything and keeping up. It was like, you know, as they're moving on, it's kind of like, if you don't know the basics, right? If you can't remember it up to a certain point, then it's just going to be kind of a terrible experience for you, especially if you're just trying it for the first time, because it's just like, wait, what move was that again? And you know, probably as a dancer, once you're kind of off of one move, I'm sure it's probably difficult to jump back on to the right time. But if you do probably mess up more than once, right? Like it's totally off. It's like almost next to impossible to jump back on if you mess up like multiple times and you're offbeat or you forget something. I imagine it's similar to how athletes feel in a sport like say basketball or tennis or something where you really have to have a lot of awareness of your body. I, I look at dance as a sport or an athletic activity as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I early on I would take classes and if I messed up, it would definitely throw me off and it would be kind of a blow to my ego and my focus that I would, there were some classes where I would completely blank out and just forget the choreography and, and, and stand there kind of frozen um, or I remember there was one class where I was, I was dancing and then they were like, all right, we're, we're going to record this one. And I was like, no, there's going to be a record of this. And, and just the thought of it being recorded, I froze and, and embarrassed myself more than, more than if I just messed up, you know, just trying to choreography and it's tough. Um, I, I, to this day, I, I think I still struggle with that. So I don't know, Mike, to encourage you, if, if you still want to dance, just know someone who's been dancing for 12 years still freezes up and messes up and gets nervous. Um, it kind of never goes away. You just learn how to deal with it. I think for me, I, I do enjoy dance, but just maybe not in a choreographed form. Just there's no pressure kind of whatsoever. Uh, but that does lead me kind of like to the question of, uh, you know, looking at high school, in college, you know, you talked about going through struggles, um, you know, remembering lines, not remembering, sorry, not remembering lines, remembering choreography, um, feeling, you know, dejected sometimes, and sometimes it wasn't always the best session. Like, how, what was your coping mechanism like back then versus like, you know, what it was in college and like, how did it change, right? Like as you kind of got older um, and more seasoned as like a, a dancer. I don't know if I had good coping mechanisms back then other than I can't get it. I need to keep practicing. Um, it, it was a, it was a work hard for what you're not good at um, kind of thing for me. But maybe that's also because I, I really enjoyed it and I really wanted it. Um, I, yeah, like if, if I was messing up on the choreography, I would just practice it over and over again, sometimes for hours. Um, and, and it would be after school and, and I'd be practicing kind of in the quad area. And all of a sudden it's 7.30 p.m. Clearly school has ended. The sun has set. And I'm here alone, out in the cold, sweating uh, because I'm practicing choreography because I just want to get it down. So I, I think... I've built a lot of discipline <laughs> because of dance. Um, I'd say now where, where I still have to find some coping mechanisms when, when dance is difficult and I feel dejected 
and it happens in real time, it is a, truly a mental exercise of, hey, the voice inside my head that is trying to tell me that I'm not worthy or good enough to, to continue in this class, shut up, bro, <laughs> get out, just keep going. Um, and, and more often than not, just keep going or continuing to go and dance classes will get you most of the way there. Um, yeah, I, I'd also say dance, dance is such a social activity that being with people that, that you like and that celebrate you and you feel comfortable with, that, that has helped me so much in, in my dance journey of a feeling like I don't belong or I don't have the choreography is the support really does, really does something. I, I, I've been a part of a number of teams at this point, and I think I continue to go back to teams because there is a security of having a group of people who are invested in the same thing that you are doing um, and can help you and process movement and the way th something is taught in different ways so that you can also be taught by them and supported by them. Um, there are dance classes that I take from teachers who I didn't know before and, and who I now know better and have built a relationship with. And when I compare my experiences of, of now knowing them better to before when I didn't know them that well, I do so much better now. And, and, and sure, it's, it's because I've become familiar with their choreography and their movement. But I also chalk it up to just having a relationship with them and, and feeling more comfortable with them as people. Uh, I think it's related to some of my insecurities of like, this person doesn't know me. And if they don't know me, the only thing that they'll judge is my dancing. And if I mess up, then I've, I've tainted their perception of me. Um, but the more I've built relationships with people, with choreographers, with teachers, the less I think about what they'll think of me in terms of my dancing and the more I value and weigh how they know me as a person. And that makes me feel comfortable more in class and allows me, I feel, to do better in a class. Do you think that being with other people in a team, because obviously the teachers, they know the choreo the best, right? Or because they're the ones teaching it. Like they have this general structure down. But then when you're with other people in a class, right? Like they're also going through the same things that you're going through, right? You know, maybe they, you're really good at certain parts and they're, you know, maybe you're not good at certain other parts, but they may be good at different parts that you're not good at. And so it's like, you guys are learning collectively together and you guys can share in those wins and share in those, um, I wouldn't say losses, right. But more of like the elements where, you know, you can improve together as a class. And so like that way, it's not the burden all on you, uh, or them or everyone, or like individually to learn and be perfect, uh, or not the burden to be perfect. Right. But you guys learn together as a group. Uh, so I imagine that's probably what, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's kind of the feeling experience that, um, teams provide, it seems like to, to dancers and just also having that community to, to, to build at a culture at a much more intimate level. When done well, yes, that that is what teams should be doing. Now, I, 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 it, it is very possible and it happens all the time that teams don't know how to cultivate that kind of space. And it happens organically, but especially with the competition space, 
it cannot happen. It can become a really cutthroat competitive space that is not conducive to support and feeling like you're around people that you like. Um, some competitive teams have started because simply that they're competitive and it almost has been treated like work, but they're often not sustainable. Um, and, and those teams don't really last that long. Kind of want to go back to the college experience. So you mentioned, you know, you joined a group, uh, and talk to me about, you know, your experiences with a college dance team and the type of experiences that, you know, you learned and you learned how to basically improve upon what you had already learned in high school uh, and how that has kind of carried you into your kind of dance career today. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is um, I, I joined a dance community that didn't get a lot of studio time. What I mean by that, and this is a shared experience across many dance teams, at least within California, Dance teams weren't always seen in, in colleges as legitimate student groups. Uh, many of them were formed as, as not official student groups recognized by like the student government. And so we weren't afforded the same facilities like dance programs uh, or ballet or jazz, things like that. So we practice outside. And I mean, we, we talked already about kind of the mirror and dancers using the mirror, uh, but often we didn't have one. Many dancers at Irvine, UCLA, UC Berkeley, not all the students have access to mirrored rooms. We dance outside. So we need the feedback of our teammates in order to tell us if we're doing well or not, which means we have to be open to receiving kind of their, their critiques and their dissent and their observations. Um, I think that's really helped me to, to receive feedback, um, not just in like the dance sense, but even the professional sense. But I, I think that's really, yeah, it, it, that's prepared me in terms of yes, hearing other people's observations, but also becoming more aware of my body, knowing how it's moving without seeing it, but just creating more bodily awareness and, that that has served me so well in kind of my post-collegiate pursuit of dance um, because dance becomes a bit more complex when you leave the collegiate scene. You start to do maybe more experimental things or you're now performing with people and you're, it's like contact where you're, you're, you're part of a shape and someone's hands or body is on you and you have to be really aware of your body. Or maybe you're dancing around more props or within a specific space. Um, or you're dancing on a set, right, with a camera and actors and other people. The bodily awareness is so important. Um, and I feel like I've built more of that because I, I needed, I was, a sense, right, was, was taken away from me. I couldn't see my own body in the mirror. So I had to become accustomed to knowing what my body felt like. Like, how did you know, like, you improved upon your bodily awareness? Like, is it just a feeling, right? Is it just like, repetition of doing the same movements or similar movements um, and just knowing how, you know, if or when the timing feels right as you're, you know, performing. It's a constant discovery. Um, I think no, becoming more aware of your body can look like becoming better at learning choreography because you've now you're increasing your awareness of your body when you increase your dance vocabulary, right? So there's more awareness there. 
Um, for me, I, spatially being spatially aware has always been kind of fun. Like I, I dance around my house, even if I'm the only one at home, I will like kind of pull on a doorknob and really enjoying the kind of sensation of the push or the pull that I can have similar to like a dance partner. If you're dancing, um, like in pairs. Um, and so I think you, for me, I've, I've become more, I I've been aware that I've become more bodily aware because I can kind of manipulate myself through spaces and achieve what I imagine in my head. Like, Oh, cool. I can do that. What well, would require this and this kind of weight shift and, um, it's kind of like manipulation of my chest. And when you can set a challenge for yourself internally and mentally, and then actually like manifest it and act it out, you're like sick. I knew what I needed to do in order to achieve that. Um, I could translate it from my head or from my psyche into actual movement. Um, or I could follow someone's instructions. All of that, I, I can understand kind of feels a bit nebulous, but truly like, as, as dancers, that's, it feels good to be able to move about a space the way you want to, or often even surprising yourself. Like I didn't, I didn't know I could do that, but I did. And in those moments, that is again, another leveling up of your awareness. Like, whoa, my, my body is capable of that. Like, you know, dancing in your own room, like, you know, such a confined space or even just in more confined spaces uh, gave you a better awareness of kind of how to move. Cause I imagine like, let's say if you're on a dance team and you have, I don't know, 20, 30 people, right? Like your movements have to be potentially flowy, but concise or not, well, maybe not concise is not the right word, but like constrained within a specific space. So do you think that like the dancing in the room in maybe a smaller spaces gave you kind of the ability to manipulate your body in a way that you're you became more comfortable dancing in a confined space the space really matters um i will say it's <laughs> hmm. it's not a yes or no to your question for sure i i used to teach a weekly class when i lived in the bay area and i would choreograph um in, in mirrors that were much, much narrower than this, kind of like your, your good old standard, like standing mirror that you would maybe buy at a department store. Um, and choreographing in that is really tough because you can't really move laterally without losing vision of yourself in the mirror. Um, and so that, that provided constraints on movement. Um, but I'd say that that constraint actually helps a dancer to be able to think beyond the space that you have. Um, I would, hopefully I can explain this well, would choreograph within the sliver and maybe the choreography would take me somewhere else. And then I had to pause and kind of remember my positioning and translate myself back into front of the mirror to then continue it. But knowing that that translation and that movement is not part of the choreography itself, so that once I piece it all together, I do end up somewhere else, but um, the process of creating it and dancing it out is a bit in piecemeal and a bit disjointed, right? And I think that dis this that disjointment and, and having to kind of piece everything together helps a dancer create more awareness 
um, and, and space, knowing that I have to do this or that I'm going to move here. Um, I've, I've found that when I've choreographed in more horizontal spaces, my choreography moves more horizontally. Um, and, and a dancer who's aware knows that, okay, I, I know that this is my constraint and this is probably what will happen. How do I move beyond this constraint then? Well, how can I design within the movement so that I'm not bound by this space? Um, so yeah, I, I, yes, the, the, the space does influence how one moves. Um, but I find that the constraints are, are helpful for dancers to be more creative if they're going to pursue it, right? Like you could, you could just be at the mercy of the constraint and not grow beyond it. But I mean, cool stuff, innovation happens when you decide to go beyond it. And, and I found that for myself. Yeah. I'm just thinking about, you know, high school and collegiate teams, especially because, you know, Christian, let me ask you this. What's the biggest dance group? Like what's the biggest, uh, amount of, what's the largest amount of people that you've had out dancing at the same time on one stage that you've been a part of on one stage simultaneously, like at the same time. Yeah. I was helping host a, a dance show in the Bay area at the time. It was called urban paradise hosted by the company based in daily city. Um, I had all, all the, the, the performers. So a, a number of dance teams from across California on stage to learn some choreography. It would probably had to be like seven or 800 people, uh, on one stage doing some choreography. Yeah. So that, that many. Okay. So I would imagine you have seven to seven to 800 people at one time. Everyone has to be mindful of the space. Right. Like if you're all next to each other doing the same move at the same time, right. If someone takes maybe one step too far, you're going to bump into another person. Yeah. And so I think that's how it's interesting because like just thinking about dance in a dancing in a big group, right. And having to transition people off stage and on stage. Right. I think that's one of the most unique things particularly about high school and especially college dance uh, is the transition on and off stage with such a large number of people, just because usually like, you know, when you see dance, you know, in a music video now, like you're not going to have generally speaking as many backup dancers as you would, I would say, in my opinion, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong as a college dance group or high school dance group. You're right there. Um, it, I, I, it is impressive to, to move people coordinated on and off stage. I mean, this is why it takes so long to put together a set. I, I'm baffled still that, that, that I get to participate in something like this. Dance teams meet for weeks, months on end sometimes. Putting hours and hours of rehearsal time, practice, meetings to prepare the formations and the choreography. And sometimes all, all, all of that is for five minutes on stage. <laughs> it's a huge amount of investment for such a short period on, of, of dancing and performing um, on stage. And 
it seems like the value proposition, right? Doesn't always seem, it's just kind of surprising, but it really is worth it from a dancer's perspective. It just feels good. Um, but it is tough. It, it takes a ton of work. Um, I, I, to your point on it being particularly impressive for college teams, these are often students, right? Who are studying things that they've never studied before. Many of them don't have jobs or are, are college students who are, are also trying to live right. Um, and, and pay for school. And yet they're also committing to a large extracurricular activity that requires so much of their time, their energy, their spiritual and like physical presence. Um, it's a lot. And, and so it is impressive. Um, really impressive that that dancers can do this on top of remembering choreography and 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 all the other other things of life so um i don't know use the stage as like a, a both a uh it's a figurative thing too right but it's 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 all of it it is quite impressive when, when you kind of zoom out and think about it talk to me a little bit about your what was your daily kind of or I would say daily or weekly kind of routine, right? As when you were in college, right? In terms of balancing the school side of it, as well as the dance side of it. So kind of like walk me through, I have like a general idea just from hearing about it and having dancer friends, but I kind of want to hear like your experiences from that in terms of managing both school and extracurricular dance. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll let's let's take a, a normal Tuesday for me in college. Wake up, go to eight a.m. class, um, have a full day of classes. Well, let's say in the middle of the day around lunchtime, I'll go meet up with my my dance team because someone is tabling on the main kind of student plaza because um, we're trying to either recruit more members or uh, market for some kind of event like a fundraising event or a dance show that we have. Or trying to sell tickets to a show that we are hosting, um, and that that act itself of kind of tabling and having dance community and other people around in a public space was another kind of big part of community. Um, but naturally, you have dancers there who are in their free time, and we might practice some of the choreography. So it might be like, "Hey, does anybody want to meet me at the tables tomorrow at eleven thirty, so that you can catch me up or review the choreography?" Um, I might go back to class after that, honestly, still probably practicing the choreography in my mind, but trying to focus on school, um, then maybe go to office hours, but still focused on dance. And, and maybe this is where I say it is hard to balance and compartmentalize as, um, at least it was for me. I, I I was pretty academic in high school, but I don't think my high school prepared me well for how challenging UC Berkeley would be. Um, but I also really, I really liked it. To one of the, the best schools in the nation. So it's, it's quite impressive already. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, but it, I, I have to say, I, it was tough. Like I, I, I actually was on academic probation and then um i had to like stop regular school for a little bit because my grades were not good um and i i credit or maybe discredit rather some of that 
yes to some personal things, but also because I was, I was wildly distracted by dance and it pulled at my focus a good amount. Um, it's a bit, bit of an issue with the dance community of like, can these, these folks get into school and they can't focus on, on their academics because they're so immersed in an activity that really is life-giving, but, um, you go into the deep end and, and you kind of lose sight of, of why you're in school or, or how expensive it is and, and, and what opportunities it can provide you when you, once you graduate. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wasn't studying a whole bunch, but I was dancing a lot. Um, I would grab dinner and then rehearsal would start around 8 p.m. And so maybe before that, I would meet up with people to practice choreography or maybe work on formations. And then rehearsal will be from like 8 to 11. And sometimes often it would extend, especially if we had a show or a competition coming up. Um, there were days when we rehearsed till midnight, 1, 2 a.m., on some campuses, they have things called sunrise practices where you practice until the sun comes up and then somehow you find sleep and then you go to class or work. Really, really hard. Um, I remember like if there was like a performance. So I was part of this college group called Chinese Association at UCI. And uh, as part of our, I guess you call them like part of our subsidiaries or branch groups that were associated with us. It was called uh, CDC, which stands for Chinese uh, Association Dance Crew. They may have changed names, like as of late, it's been like 15 years or probably almost, uh, almost 17. Yeah. 17. Still the same, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Um, so they would perform for all of like our like cultural nights or if we had like, uh, you know, inner team, inner, I don't know, collegiate group uh, dance competitions and stuff like that. And they would go through like what was called hell weeks. And I'm sure, I don't know if it was called the same for you guys, but, uh, they would start practice at 7 PM in the parking lot and they would practice straight to like 4 AM every single day for that week in preparation, uh, you know, leading up to, you know, a big event or something like that. So it was quite really impressive, uh, to be honest, like, I also had a friend who was, uh, I think she was like a civil engineer. Uh, and one of the dance, one of the dance members in the group was also like a civil, uh, civil engineer as well. And she was like, wow, that's really impressive that, uh, you know, this person is an engineer and doing dance like at the same time to kind of piggyback off your point about balancing school, you know, and work. Yeah. It's not easy to balance it, but it's such a pool. Uh, we, we, we talked about how much of it is community-based, and I think that's why it, there's, there's such a pool to it. There's such an attraction to it. It's because you're doing an activity that is fun. It's physical. It's community building. But dance is also a very vulnerable activity where – if you think about other art forms, say painting, for example, the artist gets to paint it and then the art piece itself can be viewed without the artist having to be around. In fact, that person, the artist could pass away or disappear, but the art would still exist. But when you are a dancer, 
you are both the art and the artist simultaneously. And so you are offering your all of yourself in your creation, in your movement, in your being as the artist and the art. And so it's a very vulnerable thing. And, and when you're vulnerable with people, you form relationships. Um, and so you build a lot of community. And I've, I've built a lot of community through dance for this reason. And you just spend a lot of time with each other. Um, and, and it's you form a lot of close relationships. Most of my close friends, closest friends, are from dance. And I've known them for now 11, 12 years. But it all started because we were on the same dance team together and we just got really vulnerable in terms of movement, but also just building a relationship and, and being able to understand each other well. Um, and a lot of that stems from those hell weeks or those late night practices where we dance together for hours and then we'd go get boba after rehearsal because that was the way to end rehearsal um, or end the night rather. And then maybe if we had the energy, we would stay up and study <laughs> because we had a midterm the next day. So just a lot of time spent together um, in college because dancing and shared experiences. I want to actually learn a little bit more kind of moving past college into, you know, your post kind of coll collegiate dance uh, experiences. And, you know, what does it kind of look like for someone who in, maybe did dance during college and how they sort of can continue to enjoy kind of that same sort of community. But instead of having to deal with schoolwork, now you deal with adult life or you deal with, you know, having a job and, you know, other things that, you know, come with the responsibility of, you know, being an adult. Post-college, I, I found myself still wanting to dance and I actually was going back to UC Berkeley to practice with teams or with groups that were were made up of people who also danced in college but just wanted to keep doing it. And we returned to campus because that was the place that felt familiar and the space was free to occupy. Um, and so post-college, I, I joined teams like that. Namely, one of them was like Team Velociraptors at, at UC Berkeley, or even there was an alumni team of, of my collegiate team um, called Senior Stacks the college version being called main stacks. Um, we just had built such great and strong community that we wanted to come together. Uh, but naturally that kind of the rhythms and fashion of these teams change. It's not the same. We can't have these late night rehearsals and it. They couldn't be as frequent. Um, and so they'd be once a week uh, and then they, or they might be seasonal. Um, but I also think a lot of, like dancing on a team is is not feasible for someone post-college as they start to balance work and maybe a family or uh, increased kind of commitments of becoming more of an adult. And so a lot of dancers resort to just taking classes in the local area. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier, I, I used to teach regularly uh, intermediate advanced class uh, in Oakland at In The Groove Studios in downtown Oakland. Shout out to In The Groove. Um, yeah, been that, a home for many dancers in the Bay Area, um, especially for people who graduated from UC Berkeley and were looking for a community that kind of fit their age and their stage of life. Um, they they did offer a team and, and many people auditioned for that team and it 
has some of the similar things that a collegiate team would provide, which is community, which is time to spend together, time to eat after a rehearsal, or even shows to compete at or just to exhibit um, and see other dancers and maybe your old friends from your old college. Um, but a lot of people just like taking class because it's a low commitment thing, but you get to see people that you know regularly. Um, you get to dance like you did in college. You get sweaty. It feels like a workout. Um, and and at this point, you have money, right? Like you're choosing into taking this class. Um, so it was a way to feel like you were investing in yourself and, and putting your money to work for you. Um, and it was fun. And it was kind of pouring back into the community too. So I'd say that's that's definitely a way for, for dancers post-college to get back into it or to, to keep it consistent, which is to take classes with with people. Um, and of course, classes are are designed to improve a dancer, right? You're 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 looking to better your craft and the teacher, if they are a good one, is is equally as invested in doing that for you and with you. Um, yeah, I, I'd say classes of some sort or programs like that are really instrumental in, in making dance accessible post-college. Post yeah. Would you say that the type of dance experience, like, well, I just, actually, let me ask you this. Does the dance experience post-college, like when you're taking a class, uh, you know, meeting new people, making friends as adults, right? Like, you know, how does that, like, how does that differ post like the experience in high school? Like you talked about the money and uh, the community building, but, you know, is it more expansive in ter terms of the types of dances that you're learning? I'm guessing that you also have like traveling or resident or guest uh, dance teachers, like as well. Is it something where you learn more choreo? Like, is it a one-time session? Is it like a you know, like learning a choreo over, you know, maybe three weeks or however many days, et cetera. Like talk to me about the differences uh, when you're going through dance classes uh, at a... It's so vastly different, Mike. Yeah, it's so vastly different. I, I'd say once you're post-call... Well, let me describe the college scene first from like a 10,000 foot view. Often the collegiate choreography scene is to prepare a dance set that will be performed at some kind of competition or show. And often the dancing is so everyone looks clean and uniformed and it's not very individual. And so what comes of that is, is people who train to look clean and have clean lines and look like the person next to them and to match the choreographer as closely as they can. And that can happen in a class setting, um, but I can also say that it, it doesn't. Um, that individuality, I think, is more celebrated in a class setting because you're you're paying for the class. Um, you're you're here to learn for you, and de depending on the the intention of the class or why you're there, you may just want to show out and dance. Um, and so the focus is not the same. It, the focus is not to create a set and not to necessarily look like the person next to you. Uh, the purpose is for you to get something out of this class because you paid for it. Now, the teacher may have an expectation of like, you should be clean and you should look like me, but that is very different than um, kind of the 
the space that is created for a collegiate scene. It's also different because there's different dance forms and variations that are offered in classes after college. In college, collegiate teams, particularly in California, but it's happened in the East Coast and really across the world now, the dancing looks often similar uh, because these are dancers who are they've they've they they maybe only just started dancing in college and so their their skill level is is still developing um and and they're they're trying to emulate specific choreographers and dance teams that have gained popularity through social media like YouTube or Instagram or Facebook um many of these being Asian American really amazing dancers um but kind of put on a pedestal um and and everyone just wanting to to follow that trend or or to try what what those amazing choreographers were doing but when you get to a class setting where there's a long long history of dance educators and people who are steeped in hip hop and other dance forms you get to branch out um and so i i think it looks different because you you can learn something that you've never even touched in college or you didn't know the name of and you're learning it or can learn it from people who have been doing this for 10, 15, 20, potentially even 30 or 40 years. So I, I think post-college dance looks completely different. Um, I think what's happening now is dance dance could look like that in college settings because you build really strong habits as you're in college um, that it, it shouldn't be a surprise when you get to, to a studio that you can learn a form like locking or a form like, like break-in and it, it shouldn't feel so foreign. Like why, why are these things happening? Not as the foundation, but as something post a collegiate scene. Um, and it's a big, it's actually a really big conversation right now in the dance community. Or I was going to ask, how do you feel like you're, skill level has evolved, right? Since being in a, in a dance team, right? Like at Berkeley versus, you know, being, you know, a dancer now, right? Like talk to me a little bit about that progress personally for yourself. I mean, I think it would be a really great story and perspective to share. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was that dancer who was focusing on choreography and on looking clean and that, that has been the, my thing um because I, that's what i grew up watching on youtube uh i wanted to be a part of specific teams i think now post college I, I have joined dance teams that have focused more on freestyle and on different dance forms that are outside of just choreography or that have specific names and specific deep-seated histories um, I currently dance with a company called Culture Shock Los Angeles based here in LA. Um, and they focus on dance education and uh, working with youth and, and just engaging with the community. Right now we're training in, in specific styles. Uh, I, I in particular have picked break-in um, to, to, to train in. And, and I already feel like last night we had rehearsal and I'm pretty sore and feeling it as it's, it's foreign movement to me for sure. Um, but it's already, I can already feel like I'm up-leveled as a dancer. I guess, Christian, uh, to, to pull it back, like what, what, what is break-in? Mm. 
A lot of people know this as breakdancing. Um, you may have hear, heard it as the dancing that like B-boys or B-girls do. Uh, Breakin comes from New York City uh, where hip hop was born. Um, and it is a, a street dance form um, and one of the pillars of hip hop. And so Breakin looks like those uh, the moves that you might see where dancers are dancing on the floor um, and maybe spinning or um, moving quickly with their feet as they're supporting their body with their arms. Um, it's, it's that kind of movement. And it could look like flips or like spins on your head. Um, but that, that is, that is break in. And I, there's probably better words to describe what that is, but I, hopefully with that description, you get an idea of what break in is. Yeah, I definitely have a much better kind of idea of that uh, and, you know, what it actually is. And then talk to me a little bit about how, you know, what it felt like to learn and go through like this uh, particular style of dance, like in a post-collegiate setting. I, I got to give props to Culture Shock because it's so much of dance education today is is often void of the history um much of dance as we know it across the globe um and across history actually all stems from black art forms um we 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 pull a lot of breakdancing grooves and movement from different uh mostly black communities but indigenous indigenous communities too um and so it felt really significant for me to learn these movements and, and forms because they inform what, what I've done throughout college. They inform the choreography. Um, it also feels really difficult and, and kind of a blow to my ego because I'm not good at it. Breaking requires a lot of physical strength, um, but much like anything else that requires a lot of physical strength like other sports, or weightlifting, it requires a lot of mental strength as well. Um, and being able to kind of push through what hurts or what feels really difficult or really in, impossible. Um, so for me, it's it's felt challenging, um, but it's also felt really fun. Um, and fun for the reason for the reasons of me being able to be with community and, and struggling together with them and being encouraged by them. But also fun because it's it's kind of like figuring stuff out for yourself. I feel like I'm I'm being taken back a bit to when I was practicing in my mirror, those dance moves that my aunt brought home from a rave. I'm having to workshop these things, or we might say lab, lab them on my own. Um, post this call, I'll probably be in this space right behind me trying to figure out, you know, what a, how to do a six step, which is a movement on the floor that involves six different steps of kind of like rotating your body around. Um, it's it's so tough, but it's, I don't know, it feels really good to engage my body and to kind of unlock different positions or different moves. Um, and it's not just a physical thing. Like I said, it's a mental thing too. Do you feel that you basically get to go through this duality of being, you know, the student again, uh, relative to maybe something else, uh, another dance that you've gained, you know, relative mastery in, and just that constant going back and forth between being the student and the master and starting 
uh, from scratch almost, right? Like you have some basics and I'm sure there's some commonalities, but, uh, you know, talk to me about that feeling of learning something new, going back to something that you, you know, really well, and then going back again, right? Just that continuous cycle. It's absolutely humbling, um, to say the least. I, sometimes it doesn't feel good to be a student, right? Like it's the, the struggle is, is tough. It there's, you don't always experience the payoff of being a student because you have to continue working at it. Um, for me, that's, that's what it feels like to learn breaking right now. It's extremely tough. And then I'll go maybe take a choreography class, um, at a studio from a, someone who uh, their style feels familiar to me, or I've, I've learned their kind of set of vocabulary, or even just being in that setting of, I've, I've been to hundreds of classes at this point. Um, and so I know what to expect and I know, uh, that it, that it'll require me to listen to music, um, and that I can kind of pick apart music and almost anticipate what might happen. Um, and so, yeah, I do oscillate between what feels like familiar spaces or familiar movement to now it kind of feels like a disruption of I'm using my body in a different way and going between those two, I, I'd rather have it this way, right? I mean, we are, we are very routine based beings being humans, but I don't know. It just makes life more rich and interesting to challenge myself um and and try it out and put myself in kind of uncomfortable situations um yeah it's just it's a different way to move about the world literally like i'm i'm moving in different ways depending on if i'm in a class where i feel familiar and i can do my thing and i know what i'm doing and then with breaking a completely new art form at least to me um that i haven't trained in at all not proficient in um but if i keep going I build some proficiency and hopefully I get to a point where I can start to feel more comfortable, um, that I can push myself into another space where it is uncomfortable. And then we just level up and continue to do that. Um, yeah, it's not easy. And I got to say it requires breaks and kind of a long-term vision for pursuing it. But I don't know. I, I, I think I've over the, over time post-college I've learned the payoff is going to continue to be further down the line, but it's worth it. I guess that brings me to one of the other points that I wanted to ask you is like during your post-collegiate kind of dance career, I'm sure you've uh, leveled up or you've gained more experience in terms of, you know, how to take care of your body or how to prepare for a dance uh, routine or even a practice or a class, right? And also how to decompress from all of that, how to rest and recover. So talk to me about like that experience uh, in terms of just mentally and physically and emotionally preparing and decompressing um, to recover after uh, a dance session or before a dance session. Uh, I have to shout out... Um... Keone and Mario Madrid, who are these amazing dancers um, from San Diego, California, and also led uh, this amazing dance team that I looked up to called Choreo Cookies. Uh, but I think they were some of the first people who, at least within my community and my circles, evangelized treating dance 
as a sport and training like an athlete in order to engage in the sport. Um, they use their social media presence to do many things, but one of the things that they did was show how they trained with a personal trainer so that they could be better dancers. And I think that had a huge influence on the dance community. Uh, I'll say today I engage with a personal trainer um, and my, my training is focused on stability and agility and being a, a better, more mobile athletic dancer. And I see a lot of the dancers that I look up to now and who are my contemporaries, and many of them are also doing the same thing. And I, con I consider this a part of my preparation where when I show up and we have a part of rehearsal when we're, where we're conditioning, I want to feel prepared and able to take on the exercises that we're uh, going to go through and not have to struggle through them. Like I felt like I was struggling when I was in college because I didn't have the right tools. I didn't, I, I wasn't focusing on like the right muscle groups or even just the same consistency and cadence um, that I am now. And so now I feel like I'm a stronger, more prepared dancer uh, because I condition and exercise outside of rehearsal. When I think about decompression, uh, it's definitely rolling out and making sure I, I, I stretch out and you know take care of my body before I go to sleep. Um, but actually, what, what what comes to mind for decompression is is spending time in community, and maybe I mean that's just a habit, but that that hasn't changed since college. Um, it is maybe a cultural thing to post post-rehearsal or post-practice or post-performance to just hang out and chat and debrief the performance or just spend time with people, get boba, get food. Um, that that almost is a, a a must for any kind of like post-dance thing is, is some kind of community time. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that's really important. Um, but also is taking care of your body and like maybe it's a massage gun or rolling out with a foam roller, but yeah, I, the, the physical, um, kind of preparation and then post is, is absolutely crucial, especially as you get older and, and, and are post-college. Right. Right. Cause like our bodies are not necessarily as naturally as malleable as before, you know, unless we're taking care of our bodies and, you know, conditioning it in ways that maybe we might not have in college. Um, I did want to ask, well, actually I, one thing I did want to, I, I noted and observed I, when you were talking about decompressing and spending more time with community, do you think that it could be because you're, you, you mentioned dance is a very emotional and vulnerable uh, kind of routine and experience. And now you get to, sort of share and partake and kind of release some of that uh, through chatting with other people after dance uh, dance sessions and things like that. Like it's a different form of like, you can, you don't necessarily have to be in the moment of like you are in dance, but you can also just more freely just share in it with a, a larger group of people. Hmm. I, 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 it's not intentional. I think it just kind of comes, it, it's a byproduct of being vulnerable with people uh, after an extended period of dancing and, and just spending time and, and all bodies are kind of in the same place. It's, oh yeah, you feel closer. I remember there was one rehearsal where 
we were doing some contact freestyle and I had just felt closer to the, to the people that I danced with and um, emotionally. And I think that's normal. Um, but I, I think that's kind of common amongst humans uh, who naturally like, you know, we, when we're in close proximity with people, normally that comes with intimacy. And um, this, this was a non-romantic version of like physical closeness, but I, I, I felt closer to them emotionally and like, like better friends because we moved together. Um, and I think that does require trust and vulnerability and a comfort that you maybe, or that I couldn't achieve solely by just talking, you know, um, there, there's something about movement and movement together that does bring people together. Um, yeah. I did want to get to, you know, talking about the best way to, you know, teach uh, choreo. And, you know, as a student, uh, you know, when you're taking when you're the student, what's the best way to receive and approach that choreo? I'll say from the I'll start from the teacher's perspective. I think there's a, a lot of responsibility rightfully so for someone who is teaching a class or is teaching choreography. A choreographer is not necessarily a teacher. I think the responsibilities are different. A choreographer can kind of come up with the moves, but they may not necessarily have the toolkit or be prepared to share those, that movement with people. Now, when you teach dance, it's so much more than just teaching moves. One, it's being aware of where the movement comes from, from a historical perspective, from a contextual perspective. And so when you relay these moves and explain them to others, can you cite where these come from, where this movement is inspired by or where it's rooted in? Uh, I mentioned before that much of our movement that we do today and much of the music that we move to today comes from African roots, comes from the Black community. And I think it's a question and a challenge and a call for all teachers is how well do you know where these art forms and this music comes from? And can you assign the right credit to the source so that we're not erasing that culture or not erasing where it actually came from? So I think that's a, that's a, that's a call and a challenge that I have for teachers is um, you, you should know what you're, you're doing and moving and so that you can actually educate the people who are going to continue to do this after you. Um, students are, go are eventually going to grow into teachers and they are also going to share their knowledge. Um, and I think it, it, it is a, the responsibility of a teacher to be able to know what what, what it is that they're passing on and where it comes from. Because so much of the culture and the richness and the authenticity of that movement is embedded within that history. Um, and so it's needed. I guess my question, I was gonna say my question to that would be like, where, where do people, where, or where can people learn and discover like where, uh, the origins of a lot of, you know, the dance moves were inspired from, like, how do they become more educated, you know, about it other than just, 
you know, taking dance classes and whatnot, like, are there any other sort of resources uh, that people should be or should be looking at to to better inform themselves of where these things are, are coming from? The internet is a great resource. Uh, I'd say you can learn a lot about dance history and different dance forms from YouTube itself alone. Uh, but there are groups out there and even people within higher education spaces that are that are focused on making more making dance education more robust and more inclusive of uh black art forms um historically dance education has kind of been limited to european and white versions of dance that still have pulled inspiration from um and 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 benefited largely from um, black art forms, um, but are often not, but black forms are, are, are artists are not often credited. So yeah, I would say do, do the search on, on YouTube, look up the history of, of dance moves from different eras. I would say even watching old videos of soul train, which is, um, a, a dance show that was shot in LA, um, in like the seventies, uh, and eighties. And you'll see a lot of these dancers, mostly dancers of color who are doing moves that have inspired choreography and movement that we see today, but we didn't even know that it existed back then, uh, because media is just moving so fast, but e even just taking the time to explore what dance looked like 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, um, and, and, and following that paper trail can, can lead to unlocking a lot of that history. Uh, Monsell Jordan is a, a professor for USC who teaches on dance history and the origins of dance. And so you'll learn a lot about the different forms that have created the foundation and basis for what we know dance and music to be today. Um, a lot of dance teams, collegiate and outside of the college scene, are now dedicating time to learning more about where these things have come from. Um, I'd say if you are plugged into a studio or have any access to social media, look for these dance leaders, these people that you look up to and engage them. I, I think that's a way to learn too, is where did you learn what you know? Where did, you, where did it come from? Um, I think, I think it, it come to learn something it comes from a place of curiosity. And that is absolutely true for dance. Ask your teachers where they got it from. Um, look for their sources and continue to dig back into each of those sources and you'll find something. Um, it, it, I'm, I was guilty of this for sure, of like just receiving what I was getting through dance and not questioning or not being curious about where it came from. Um, but I've, I've just discovered so much and learned so much when I started to be more curious about why why it is that dance is was it is what it is um or who it came from or why is it that i can benefit um from it and w where did that benefit come from why is it so fun why why is this movement this way or why is it similar to this indigenous practice um so yeah it start with youtube a and they're also like speakers and people in the community yeah i can i can imagine that you feel much more knowing the history, you feel much more connected to the origins of the 
like the dance move, but also the spirit in which, you know, the expression that's supposed to be conveyed, right? Like, I think it just, I would imagine it makes just even the movement, but just more rich, the way that you express it much more rich and fulfilling versus just like, oh, I saw this move on TikTok, right? And like, it's a thing. It just probably feels a lot more shallow, uh, I would imagine, without that kind of uh, educational piece. Absolutely. And, and I think like engaging in these different dance forms connects you to a history that is that precedes me for sure, uh, but precedes many of us who have been dancing for a while. I I could do, for example, like I, I could, I could whack, right, which is a, a move of, and there's different variations of it. And if I don't know the history behind it, um, then it is just a movement. But if one understands that this style was done by gay men in in the in the clubs of LA, and and simultaneously there was another art form called voguing that was happening within the underground clubs of New York City, also by like gay or gay men um, or or trans women um, as an expression and of of resistance um, and in response to not being accepted in. Uh, more like uh like non uh non queer or friendly spaces um then you you wouldn't know that and again it would just be a movement but there's so much more to that than than just a movement there's an identity there there's a history there there's a resistance there there's um there's oppression there there's people's lived experiences often dance is related to being someone's out um or someone's refuge someone's life because everything else in their life was not accessible to them or not safe um and so when when we reduce dance to just movement and we fail to learn about the history we're doing ourselves a disservice and we're not honoring the people who allowed us to have this um so it to me it it's 100 percent necessary to to pay homage and respect to those who provided us the movement and the music to, to enjoy it today. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know, dissing your grandparents, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I was going to say, I think one of the things that's interesting is when you look at more formalized dance, uh, uh, maybe not formalized, more institutionalized dance, whether it's like salsa or, you know, ballroom dancing, or maybe it's ballet, right? Or things that are typically have long rooted histories. They often are used to tell a story, right? And the movements are there to tell a story. If you think about like capoeira, right? Like that's something where it was a way to tell, to communicate with other people through kind of song and dance because they didn't want you know, the slave traders, right, to, you know, recognize like that they were actually telling stories like uh, and communicating. So I think that's one of the interesting things about, I think what you brought up is the history of dance and how it's uh, a form of an older form of storytelling. Well, absolutely. Um, whether it was good or not, I mean, uh, I the slaves of old uh, were sometimes brought in by their slave owners 
to just be entertainment. Um, and so black people were brought in to, to just dance and sure tell a story. Um, but it was, it, it, it was a form of enter, entertainment too. Um, but over time it has become kind of like legitimized there. There were black performers who were even mocking white, white kind of elite through their storytelling when they had to perform. Um, and uh, again, it was like a form of resistance and, um, expression and, and a way for them to survive. Uh, yeah. And, and then we, we experience and, and see how dance has prevented or helped people from getting into wrongful activity, whether it be, you know, overuse or just abusive use of drugs or even gang activity. I mean, there's, there's so many stories where, where dance has just saved people's lives. Um, and, and that itself is a story. Uh, and, and that's why it's so beautiful and, and useful for kind of connecting with people. I feel like just throughout this conversation, I've really gotten to appreciate, you know, how much knowledge and how important, like knowing the history is behind something just from your perspective, even just from the, the, the charisma of, you know, the importance of it. Just, I mean, I think history in general is just very important, but just think hearing it from like a dance perspective and how it's actually being applied kind of in real life or the importance of it and the advocacy of it is something that like, I'm very appreciative of in, you know, in terms of this conversation, you know, right now. And I appreciate you receiving that. I, I think it's, it's so important and I'm, I'm glad that it has a space on this pod. Um, it's, 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 I have to say it, it can be really tough to, to feel like history should be a part of this. Some people just want to dance. And, and that has been a, a very kind of common response to when, when dance education kind of comes into the, into play is like, yo dude, I'm just trying to move. Like, why do we have to spend time learning about this? Like why, why, why does it matter? But it, it, it just, again, it's, it's paying homage and paying respects and, and, and giving credit where credit is due. Um, we wouldn't have these if, if, if the history of, of dance didn't exist, you know, and, and the people who brought hip hop forward didn't exist. I just learned yesterday that um, Cedric Avenue in, in the Bronx in New York City was renamed, I think, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm gonna butcher this. I think it's like Street of Hip Hop or the birthplace of hip hop. Um, and, and how many of us know where hip hop comes from? But it, it, it did start out in a house where DJ Cool Herc was hosting a party. Um, and that's, that's something that many of our like generations younger don't know, even older generations where hip hop had come from, a place in the United States, um, in, a, in a community of, of color, of black and brown folks. Um, yet now hip hop is thrown around and is, is one of the biggest genres in music of today. It's so popular and, and world renowned, but do we know where it comes from? Like there are so many other things in history that we know where, where things come from. People look up where electricity came from or where popcorn came from or where we have like the wheel. Do we know where hip hop comes from? Do we know what it's about? What, where its histories are? Who are the people that made it come about? Do we know that there's also women who helped make hip hop become a thing? Like it's, it's such a rich history that we don't spend enough time thinking about and engaging in. 
but has enabled us to enjoy so many of the pleasures of life. Um, and, and this is where I think we're at an inflection point now where we have a critical amount of history and an ability to access these things. Why not understand it more? I mean, it's a super profound like thought and it, you know, it, I think it takes a certain level of like individual responsibility as well as curiosity, like the curiosity to really want to, to deeply engage with it. And I think, you know, you mentioned how in the dance community, you were saying like, people just want to do the movements, right? Like maybe it's just for lack of education. Um, maybe it's for maybe things like social clout. You see someone doing Fortnite dances, right? Like it, maybe this is more for the younger generation. Uh, you know, you want to, it's like their form of community, right? But maybe not necessarily um, an area of focus that they're looking at. And I, I do agree that there needs to be, you know, more education kind of in the space, but it's also like, how do you make that education much more apparent in a way that is understood through more progressive entertainment lens? And I use the word progressive because, you know, it has to come from a good place, not necessarily, uh, with the lens of, hey, I'm going to use this just for, you know, entertainment purposes, right? Like there has to be, I don't know, something instilled in it, right? That it's just like a message behind the entertainment kind of piece, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. There's there's always something more behind it. Because like no one really wants to learn from like a history book, right? Like it's it's, it's kind of a boring, for most people, probably a boring way to absorb information. Nowadays, everything kind of has to have like an edutainment uh, kind of feel uh, to it in order for anything to really get taken off the ground. Right. Yeah. I, I think, and with dance, it is built within the DNA of it, right? Like there, 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 there are histories behind moves. Sometimes you can find the history in the name. Um, but even as doing it, or I mean, even music, uh, we think about kind of, yeah, like the, the origins of like jazz or blues coming from um, like the spirituals of the, the slaves who are in the field um, and, and tracing that back to what they brought from Africa of like chance, like the, the 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 art form itself is is embedded with history, um, so participating in it is I don't know. It's an invitation to learn it. Um, it's not just out of a book. Yeah, I do want to. I think this is a good kind of transition point to talk about how music is becoming much more global, right? Like you know, initially, probably you know, in the last twenty years or so it's gone from like being a very like us centric uh focus on media going you know or i would even say by the last 20 i would say almost the last like 50 50 60 years where you have like you know michael jackson and you know the the backstreet boys right and you know boy bands and now you have like a proliferation of of music whether it's afro beats you know, J-pop, K-pop, rap, uh, hip hop, like you have all these combined or not competing. You have all these 
uh, different genres of music, right, that are coming from everywhere. And to a certain point, degree, I feel like they really cross-pollinate within the U.S. specifically. Um, and so I kind of want to get your take in terms of just how you've seen sort of music change, how you've seen, you know, the kind of dance performances uh, have changed over time, um, you know, as music has become a much more uh, global, uh, a global popularity, a global scene, um, especially in the United States. Are you prepared for my spicy take, Mike? I'm not sure. Uh, are the listeners prepared? I hope. I hope this is why y'all are tuning in for the spicy take. And maybe it's not spicy. I mean, I'm ready. I'm ready to learn. Yeah. Mm. Maybe it's not spicy. I mean, we've had conversations like this before. Um, I will share. It's maybe my biggest gripe of the dance community, which is largely Asian, Asian American, at least within California. But I, I say the same is true for collegiate dance communities in New York, in Boston, um, in Chicago, in uh, Texas, in Arizona, uh, in Hawaii, um, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, yeah, even in like parts of the South that there is a failure to recognize the influence of hip hop and of black artists and of black movement. Um, what, what we've seen in the dance community is an increase in the, the use of hip hop music um, and not an increase in the, well, one engagement in, in, in where hip hop came from in the history and also not an increase in the amount of, of, of black people in the dance community. Um, and still a lack of, yeah, I, I guess as re repeating my point, but a lack of engagement of, of what, what kind of place Asian Asians and Asian Americans have. Um, and, and, and so how I think this manifests is like for a while, there was a bunch of like dance teams who were using hip hop with, n-words kind of like throughout the music and this is my take but it, I, I find it extremely inappropriate um to to just use use a song that has um a bunch of language that in my opinion is 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 for a specific group um of people now i i don't think it that because it has the n-word or or describes lived situations or lived experiences of a people group that it disqualifies people from listening to it, but rather using it for your own kind of personal gain or for your artistic expression without understanding the, the context or the significance of that song for that particular people or that particular artist, I think is irresponsible. Um, and yeah, I, I've I've known way too many people within a dance community, Asian American, mostly men, who are using the N word as a as a joke or as a thing that they can just say because it has no consequences on them and they don't care about the history. Um, and and it's shown up in in how dance has kind of manifested in the community where they don't care where the song comes from or what kind of movement they're doing. It's just cool and it provides them the social status and the social clout. Um, that that elevates them and makes them feel like they're participating in something that um, 
is is fun and cool and gives them more status um and that really pisses me off because it's it is pretty much by de definition of like appropriation and it appropriation i don't think is always a problem it's just the lack of engagement it's not giving credit where credit is due and acknowledging the oppression and, and kind of the history behind it. Do you think it comes from a place of like ignorance or just, um, you know, like lack of, well, I guess that's ignorance, lack of education on that top particular topic. Um, or does it come from just not really caring, right? Like about it. I do think it comes from a place of ignorance. I also think it does come from a long-seated history of anti-blackness. And this comes from largely our, our ancestors and people before our generation, right? Like uh, we live in a country where there has been a history of pitting people of color against each other. We've seen it here in LA, uh, like the LA riots of like, black and brown communities pitted pitted against Asian communities in 1992, thinking about, right, like the LA riots. Um, it, it's, I, I have owned my own family members, um, some that I'd passed and some still living who are kind of blatantly racist and will make comments about black folks. Um, there, there, there is a, a colorism aspect to it too, where in the Philippines, in Korea, in many parts of Asia, there's soap to make your skin more light and white. Um, and it's seated in this concept and this idea that being darker is bad. Where does all of this come from? Um, so I, I think it's, it, it does come from an ignorance, but it also comes from a history. For that particular portion, like the, the colorism part, I think it's really about status. Right. Like, you know, I, maybe I used to hear stories of how like people who didn't work in the fields, right. Their skin quote unquote would be fairer. Right. And people, you know, that's, that was a differentiating status kind of thing. I think that goes back historically, like for probably decades or not decades, probably at least, you know, centuries of just this belief that fair was always better right or just that you just didn't have to work the fields that you were richer you could have a much more comfortable life you probably were a emperor empress you know like someone of high status like if you think about even just today when you think about you're mentioning the skincare stuff how many east asian um models do you see or even just asian models do you see that are of darker skin especially when you see advertisements in asia right like everyone for the most part the sign of beauty right is fair skin uh so it's definitely still rooted right even within east asian culture um you know historically and i think you know as part of the asian american experience you have different people and generations coming over right to america right like you have people who whose parents you know are second generation you have some people's parents um uh, you know, that are, I don't know, they're coming over for the first time now, like my parents, right? They, they were born here. My grandparents came during like the, I don't know, what is it? Uh, 1920s, right? The uh, Angel Island and the history books kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, racism was still pretty prevalent even then. And the funny thing is like, 
you know, when I talk to, you know, my friends who are second generation Asian and I talk to my mom and I hear her stories, like I triangulate the two, like they're actually very similar, uh, you know, regardless of, I think it's a generational thing, whether it's like they either pick it up here or it's, they bring over the attitudes from East Asia over here or how, you know, maybe people of color are seen right in, in Asia, right? Like they bring over those same kind of attitudes. And I feel like that's something that's not really talked about like a lot, uh, just because like, it's not as quote unquote American. Right. Uh, but I think for more recent immigrants, like they do bring over as much as they bring over their skills and experiences, they also do bring over, right. Like a lot of the attitudes, uh, you know, for better or for worse, right? Like, or cultural beliefs that were based from over there, right? Like it's, you know, let's say for example, um, you know, not even like kind of excluding like black people, right? Like, you know, Chinese people use, you know, probably Indonesians, Filipino people, right? Historically as mates, right? Like in Hong Kong, right? Like there's a colorism and a status kind of thing like even there too. Right. Um, so it, I mean, it definitely, that's why I, I think it exists at a much broader spectrum and it's a combination of, you know, East Asia colorism, as well as it complicates it, you know, a little bit more here because it's also relevant from, uh, you know, American, uh, I wasn't say domestic policy, but just like, um, can't really find the right words to say it, but, it's a domestic issue here, right? A socio, uh, political and uh, interracial issue here. So it just, it makes it really complicated, I think. I agree. It is, is it is complex where, where it's, where it's starting to kind of mingle and, and, and integrate or become greater in complexity is that, like you said, this music has traveled. Black music has traveled the world and we see the influence of it in k-pop in in artists who want to sound like the black sound that we have here in the u.s um but what what comes from that what comes of the emulation of the sound without actually like understanding the source um you know like you you got a copy but you do you understand like does is is there the understanding of like the the experience that has informed the sound um and that i think that's that's where there's some missed opportunity for connection and for engagement there is we we lose that when it's it's just an appreciation for the music alone all right so this is kind of like my hot take is you know we have k-pop bands we got what 88 rising right new label but i think it's what only like three years old right or maybe four well actually it's probably been longer probably like five right five roughly five years old kind of started with joji rich brian when they started to take off i think in like 2000 you know 17 and you know i went to head the, the heads of the clouds concert like i don't really go to that many concerts but uh my girlfriend she really loves jackson wing and Jay Cho. So those were like the headliners that Magic Man. Magic Man, yes. Um and you know, it's 
it's great, I think, for Asian representation in media, right? Uh, just to see ourselves, whether like it's Asian American representation, I think that's a totally different story. Like, I think economically, right, uh, and social, uh, like society-wise, right, and in terms of our, in terms of Asian American culture, you know, there are a lot of people who are second-generation Asians. I would say that's probably the majority, you know, of Asians probably here in America. Um, but I think that the interesting thing about that, and maybe this is just maybe me living as an Asian person in California. And also for me, I'm third generation. Uh, so my parents were born here. So I didn't really have like a strong connection to stuff that would happen in Asia. Um, but all my friends, my Asian friends would, right. They'd be like, Oh, have you heard of this artist? Right. Have you, you know, they were up to date on Asian media, right. Like in a way where, it was totally focused, like their world was kind of focused on that, right? Versus, you know, some of the more mainstream stuff here. Like they live the best of both worlds, I guess you could say from a media consumption perspective. And the reason why I bring that up is because I feel like a lot of people who like, who really, really like 88 Rising and, you know, in certain, you know, uh, certain members or certain uh, people in 88 Rising they really take their authority from like, kind of like what happens in Asia. Like if you think about like K-pop fandom, right? Like it's not what happens here in the U S right. It's really like what concert did they perform at in Korea? Right. Like they're following the news and the, the stuff around them, right. In, uh, when whatever's happening in Asia. And so I feel like it's, you know, we talked about, or I guess I talked about like, being in between both cultures. And so it's really taking that authority from what's happening, right? In that East Asian media culture or like, like specifically, not to say that they can't separate the two, um, but if kind of someone doesn't really care about the politics or the history behind it, that's where they're gonna take their media authority from. Like, it's gonna be the same media authority that if I'm a fan in, I don't know, I'm guessing like Singapore or the Philippines, I'm a fan of, a person, right? I'm going to have the same language uh, in terms of how I understand, you know, this artist, whether, you know, for better or for worse. There's a popularity aspect of being in the know, right? Of associated with other people who are also into that kind of artist, especially because they're not main, they're not mainstream in America, right? Like if you tell someone like, that's not in an Asian circle. Like, oh yeah, uh, I went to Head in the Clouds. This is band, this label called 88 Rising, right? Like probably not everyone's really going to know, right? Like how many, if you ask a random person, even another Asian person, right? Like, do you know who Jackson Wang is? They'll probably be like, who's that? But if you say who BTS is, they'll probably vaguely know, right? Like there's levels, I think, to, you know, who the 88 Rising K-pop audience really is for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like we may think it's big here but if you think about on a global scale like popularity in japan korea like southeast asia which they're also doing whatever like uh another showing there right it's actually quite big and i think you know from indonesia um and so it becomes it's actually so much bigger than i think sometimes people realize but i think from a Western media perspective, it's like, oh, if they're not really that popular here, why do I care about, you know, uh, 
you know, these bands, right. That are popular in Asia or whatever, like globally, like it doesn't matter if they're not big here. Hmm. Maybe this is not where you were going, but I'm, I'm really okay with, with Asians having something for themselves. You know, I'm, I'm really okay with there being some, like it's exclusive for us because we haven't had that, you know, we haven't had music that we can celebrate and it feels like it's made by us for us. Um, I, I think it's, it's great. Like why not have an Asian label that can celebrate our identity and our culture and the way we like engage in food and each other and community. And we all take our shoes off and like, that's, that, that is how the label is represented and who it's for. It's for us. Um, and it's exclusive and it, and it feels like, you know, we can latch onto that. I love it. I, I, I want that to happen. Everyone should have a place where they feel like they, like they can go to a festival and they belong. I definitely agree. Like, like it's, it's good to have, you know, obviously our representation, right? Like as Asians as a whole, right? Like it feels great, right? It feels great to be like part of a larger community, probably to see people on stage and, you know, I do want to bring up, you know, like, for example, like the Kinjas and Jabberwockies, right, right, because they were some of the first early pioneers of, I would actually want to say, like, Asian American representation, right, and them breaking into, like, uh, a more Asian-oriented sort of media scene, right, because usually there's not a lot of Asian Americans that make it big, right, going the other way. A lot of times it's like, they come over here, they come from East Asia, they come over here, right? And then that's when they start to, you know, become big, or they're already bigger over there, and then they come over here. So it doesn't necessarily go always both ways. So I think for the Kinjas and Jabberwockies, right, like, especially, I'm sure in the dance community, like, it probably even showed a path, like, hey, these are people who maybe you grew up with on YouTube, you maybe saw them on, you know, World of Dance, or so you think you can dance, and just to see Asian dancers being on a nationally televised American show is probably going to mean a lot to the, the community. So the dance, Asian dance community. Both of these groups have been hugely influential. Um, I mean, I, I was in high school when Jabberwockies won America's best dance crew and they were, and I was from San Diego where, which is where they said they were from um, a little history though on Jabberwockies though. This is a, a group that actually stems from Sacramento. Um, and then their, each of their members kind of went to different places, uh, but they, they have roots across California. Um, and we're not just choreo choreography dancers. Like these are people who participated in the street form scenes um, and are individually amazing dancers in their own right. Um, but yes, I mean, that. Filipino American, Asian American dancers coming from these groups were huge for us. And a big reason why a lot of people continue to feed into the dance community uh, from the Asian American community is because they see themselves in, in these folks. Um, I would be doing a disservice to the whole dance community, though, if I didn't mention a hot take, which is these are both all or before, at least as they started out, all male dance groups um and like many things history repeats itself and a, a dance community has been a very male dominated thing as well um and i have 
yeah, maybe some hot takes around how some of these groups, Kenjas, even Jabberwockies, I think to a certain extent, have perpetuated this thing. And they've both tried really hard to also combat that, um, I think, with, with feedback and accountability from the community. Um, so yeah, I don't want to discount their Im- influence at all and the good that they're doing. But um, just to call to light that there's always work to do. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think part of it is also, you know, you also I think we can also think about it. it's like they've been friends for a really long time, right? Like I remember I think I think it was like from Kinja's Mike Song, Anthony Lee, like they were I actually I think I had class with Mike Song one time. It was funny cuz it was an Asian American studies class and I think he was I was in the lecture hall. I was at the, sitting near the top of the lecture hall and he was on the bottom in the front row and he was wearing i just remember he was wearing purple a purple shirt a purple backpack or something like that and purple shoes it was like clearly this guy looked like he was a dancer um but also just being able to see all the stuff that they've they've done starting from their college times right to now professionally it's so interesting just because you can, I can see a lot of like where they came from, at least in terms of like their initial dance moves or like even how they, you know, the end result of their, their finished product of their choreo shows, right? Especially because I think Anthony was also in CADC. So just seeing like the movement of how everyone moves on stage, right? Like they have a very unique style, but that style has also been uh, refined over a longer period of time. And of course they've added to it too. Um, but you could still, at least for me, like from a personal perspective, I could still see the fundamentals uh, and origins of where their unique style kind of came from. Uh, so that's just something that that I notice. Uh, but you talked about community too, right? And that community, you know, maybe for them was, you know, this particular group of friends that wanted to continue dance and, you know, to, you know, pioneer through it as a profession. Um, and I think it's, you know, the first step, you could say it's the first iteration, maybe uh, them and the Jabberwockies of, you know, Asian representation. Uh, and I think maybe the next step, like you said, maybe is, you know, the inclusion of, you know, more women or more, um, you know, homage, right, to, you know, the Black community and where maybe they took their influences off of. Uh, but I would imagine also, like, they probably learned a lot of you know, their moves from different sources, whether it's from MTV, right, or from, you know, uh, being part of the dance, the initial dance community, right, like as well, to really get to them, to the spot that they're at now. Absolutely. Um, and I want to credit Kinjas. They, they've, they've also opened up their, their membership in Bailey Sock, right, is a really amazing and uh, well-known female dancer who's killing the scene right now, kind of the star uh dancer or kind of pair to Jackson Wang's uh recent music video. Um Apple, amazing dancer from um from China, uh also kind of inducted into Kinja's. Um and logistics uh was kind of a Red Bull champion, uh amazing B girl. Like there are people in Kinja's now who who are not just men and then they've they've expanded. So Props to Kinjas, and and we see movement. I just think um, there, yeah, there 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 is a awareness of of their influence and their ability to 
impact the community. Uh, and I just want to continue to see them do, do more of that. Yeah. Usually when I, when I like, especially when I saw them at the head in the clouds this year, I was like, I, I was, I definitely made sure I wanted just to, to stay on near the stage to see them just cause you know, a lot of them went to, to UCI um, and I had seen them in person. So just being, being able to support, um, you know, alumni was kind of a, a nice thing just cause like, you know, they're seeing them online and then they're seeing them in person, but then there's also like, oh yeah, I saw you in person before you were, you know, the Kinjas kind of thing. So I think that was a really cool experience to kind of, kind of see all of that. Um, just, you know, actually have a personal connection, kind of maybe similar to the way that you have a different connection with these dancers just by being, you know, in the dance community. Like, Yeah. I wonder, Mike, is there, have you played out the kind of multiverse situation where you did end up taking, like getting into a dance team and you maybe like being on the Kinjas in current day? <laughs> That's kind of a stretch. I don't think I've ever thought about that. Although I will say my mom used to say I re- you know, I was really, I was really into dance without any sort of like formal training, just like, you know, typical, like when you're five or six years old, you hear a dance tune, you get on the floor, you move your body kind of thing. Uh, I'm sure she has, I know she has like embarrassing stories of me as a kid, just pretending that I knew I could actually dance. And I, I'm pretty sure I had, I did do all that stuff. Um, I think the motivation could have been there. Um, I kind of just chose not really to embrace it. And maybe I just kind of skipped out on it uh, in too many phases of my life, right? Like just not choosing to actually go down that path. And I think as I saw, I was like, oh, how difficult it actually could be. And then, you know, as you get older, the commitment and level of skill that if you wanted to be on a dance team, right, kind of thing, um, it gets, that dream starts to be much more elusive. I'll say if, if you have any interest in wanting to con- continue that or go back into it, it is always here for you. Um, you are a good teacher. I will say that. Thank you. Uh, and I'd, I, I'd be happy to teach, but I, I also think that there, I don't know, there's so many tools now where you can learn dance on your own. Um, the, the safety and kind of comfort of not having to be in front of other people um if if that's something that is hindering you or others out there who might be listening but you know i think it's it's more of um you know when you watch something online right you're kind of just you're mimicking the movements but i still think you have to have some base level of fundamentals right to really understand the root of it or it's like i have to learn myself right and really appreciate like you know uh, for example, I don't know, I'm just using an example, like there's a six count or there's an eight count, right? Or there's like, you know, basic music terms, right? And language that I think would be very helpful uh, in terms of just having a better fundamental understanding. Otherwise, it's just going to be me like, yeah, I could do, I could learn and, and sync dance, right? But would I really know the substance kind of behind it? Like, that's the thing where it just like, you learn one thing on the internet but then how do you put it together uh, beyond just that? I mean, I think it starts from finding a, a teacher who can, can do that for you. Here in Southern Cal, 
I'll say this. As an advanced dancer who's been dancing for a while, I still go to take beginner classes. Part of the reason is because my friends are teaching these classes and it's nice to support friends when they're teaching. The other is I still need it. I still need to be reminded of the building blocks of what I do in an advanced class. And a beginner class can still be challenging for me. It, it, it still is. I took one last week and I had a great time, but there were things that I needed to work on. And I still use the same amount of attention and, and, and physical commitment that I would in an advanced class. Um, it just wasn't as many moves, but still I'm like trying my hardest and, and it's can still be challenging, but it's, it's helpful to remind myself of these things. So it's, I don't know. I, 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 I think I'd also say that beginner classes or classes that are, are geared towards people who are just starting out. Um, it's not just for them. It's, 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 it's for all. Uh, and I, I think you're right. It does create, require like fundamentals, but those fundamentals can be built. Um, and, and, and really that is where it should start. Mike, I would not encourage you to just jump into an advanced dance class and, and, and that would be your, your pursuit of doing it. Yeah, that's that's like asking for like frustration and just overall um it's like trying to switch you're you're basically if I did that I'm asking to drown, right? Like from a dance perspective for probably a good half hour hour however long, you know, that session's going to be. You know, got to stay in the kiddie pool first. Yeah, exactly. It's and and so like there are dance online dance platforms now that offer beginner classes. Um, Steezy is a kind of well-known one that has built a really, actually, I think a really great product for dancers of all different levels to learn beginner to intermediate to advanced to specific forms of hip hop to even workout classes that can kind of help you build the, uh, yeah, just the physical stamina or, uh, the vocabulary to take on more strenuous physical activity or more strenuous physically demanding choreography. Um, and, and a bunch of studios over the pandemic have come up with their own online dance platforms or even choreographers have, have um, kind of secured a platform for them to share their own, specifically their choreography. So I think um, the pandemic has had many benefits um, in in the world despite it also being extremely oppressive and restrictive um but i think in in some ways it has kind of democratized dance um and, and i found that cool now there are some ugly things about it but in general access to dance i think is it's greater than it's ever been yeah i still think that there's there's still an element that's missing by not having like if you were just to rely solely on digital media in social media just for dance there's still something missing from or it's still something to be said about having a, a live community right being able to dance with other people and you know you talked about sharing vulnerability right and emotional connectivity and having that community like in irl right like i feel like that emotion and, and that feeling is probably something that's really difficult to replicate online or if, if you can, right. Or, or if it's able to, it's not the same, right. It's not the same as being able, you know, to 
be next to want to someone to see the space that they're taking up, right? Or lack of space that they're taking up. Uh, I just still think that like, it probably just needs to complement each other, right? You still need that physical in-person community to really just enhance and make it feel real, I think to a certain degree. I, I You're so right. There is no substitute for it. I, I mean, I, I may be going to bat for online dance platforms, but I am... I'm probably a in the minority of users. <laughs> like I don't, I I I take class weekly, uh, and I have rehearsal once a week. I prefer the in person ab- above any kind of digital dancing for sure. And I know people who just don't do it at all because that's not how they want to engage with dance. Cool. Uh, I do want to move on to the Fili- Filipino American experience. Uh, I want to ask, yeah, have you seen, I know it's been like two or three months since it's come out, but have you seen Easter Sunday by Joe Coy? Are you waiting for my take, Mike? <laughs> I mean, what are your thoughts? Like, I'm not Filipino, so like, I can't, I I can give you my thoughts. And so funny thing too is like, uh, my girlfriend, she's Filipino. So I also asked for her thoughts and her friend's thoughts as well, because we saw it all together. It was something, in all of all places, we we saw it in Union City. Uh, which is also, you know, super like a very Filipino-esque, like a very Filipino, uh, predominantly Filipino area. I think it's also um, Latino uh, as well as uh, Indian as well. Uh, But yeah, it was a good experience. I think she enjoyed it more than I did, Uh, but I want to get your take on it first and your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I want to give it up to Joe Coy for creating a, a, a film that was intended to be for Filipinos. I'm using my language very intentionally here. I I I, I didn't think it was a great film. It wasn't an it did, did did not hit it out of the park for me. But I also want to normalize that it's okay to have mediocre movies. Uh that not everything out of the Asian community has to be spectacular and exceptional. Because let's be real, there are not, there are there are mediocre movies in every other genre and from white people all the time. Did I want it to be a, a home run movie? Hundred percent. Like, I don't know. I I lived in the Bay Area for like eleven years. I wanted the movie. I wanted the characters to be more Bay. Like, I I I wanted there to be. I I, I wanted the kind of like the love interest of Joe Kwai's son to be. Well, you want it to be more Bay Area? Because I felt like it was already very, well, Bay Area to begin with. And I felt like it was the opposite, right? Like, or it should have been the opposite. Like, I get, like, his son was in LA and, you know, it was focused up here in Daly City. Um, you know, they mentioned Ceremony, right, as well. And it was just like, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit, maybe because it was so, and I get it, it was so specific, but it was. It felt like it was to a very specific Bay Area or specific Filipino audience. Let's say, you know, there are other Filipino communities other than just the Bay Area, right? Like there's LA, I believe. They're also in like New Jersey and New Orleans, um, and it kind of excludes them a little bit. It's like it kind of made the Filipino American experience centered around Daly City. Like it just kind of said like everywhere else doesn't really exist, but it also assumes that every Filipino person in America knows where 
Daly City and Sarah Monte is. I say I wanted it more Bay because I felt like it 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 didn't it didn't bring the nuance of Daly City that I think would have brought out actually a more universal and more relatable Filipino experience that could be similar to that of New Jersey or of San Diego or or, or of LA. Um, but I don't think you got that. Like, it, uh, I, I, hip hop is a big thing within the, the Filipino community, uh, Filipinos, uh, th- there were some really like prominent DJs that helped bring forth, uh, the the black art form of music into the California scene um like and I actually don't know if that was well represented or I didn't feel that was well represented in Easter Sunday um and 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 many Filipinos from Daly City are very much people who are hip-hop heads and kind of live in that and embody that uh but the way that some of the characters are portrayed it, it didn't feel like that was part of the the story of Easter Sunday, yet that is really kind of the identity of, of, of a lot of people who, who are identified as Filipino and are in Daly City. And I would say that that kind of embodiment of hip hop and the way that they, um, and how it's integrated into their music and their culture and their friend groups is a, is a more kind of universal or relatable experience across those cities that you mentioned. Um, there are parts of Daily City in culture, but also in like geography and how people navigate the space that feel much like the Filipino part of where I grew up in San Diego. Um, and so when I've spent time in Daily City, it feels like I'm in National City in San Diego. Um, or when I'm like, I was just in Queens a couple of weeks ago, and there are parts of Queens that feel like Daily City. Um, and like when I I walked into a Jollibee in 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 Queens or in in um in Woodside, which is Queens, it's like the experience was no different than if I was in in Daly City or if I was in in Chula Vista. So yeah, I, but but it it, it some of the nuance of that. I I wanted the the girlfriend of of Joe Coy's um son to be more Bay Area, more like hip hop and. Not that she wasn't a cool character, she she was, but there there were just I think there were few nuances, but opportunity to include more that would make it feel more authentic um, and relatable. I think. Do you, do you think Joe Coy well, primarily was just focusing a lot on the family kind of element? Like I I feel like that was like kind of the central message uh, of the show uh, or not show. I was I was saying show because. I literally thought of it more as like fresh off the boat, but for two hours, right? Like that's, it was more like a sitcom for two hours. And like you said, not every movie has to be a movie. It could also just be a really long sitcom. And if you frame it in that way, I think it did the job. Um, But going back to, um, you know, family, everything was like family dynamic. And I felt like that was the focus of it uh, for the most part, like the relationship between him and his mom, the aunties, like fighting you know, with each other. Uh, and obviously they had older Filipino representation as well. Like they paid homage to like the people that were in the, uh, or prominent celebrities, you know, that were Filipino uh, or not that, sorry, not more Filipino that uh, 
didn't necessarily get highlighted or represented and have their, you know, huge light in the sun. And he kind of brought them all together to, you know, pay homage to them on state on, on set. I, I thought some of the family dynamics were portrayed really well. I'm, I really enjoyed Joe Coy's mom. Um, her performance in the movie was spot on uh, how, Atita would would operate. I think the the drama between the Titas was pretty good. It was dramatic, but what do you expect out of it? Yeah, but it's a it's a comedy, right? Like he that's his job, right? To to blow it out of proportion. Right, right. Uh, I think that was accomplished. Um, and there, yeah, I, I, I'm not. I didn't hate the movie. Yeah, don't please, like, don't get don't get me wrong. I I'm glad it exists. You don't you don't want to get canceled by by other Filipinos, so I understand. I mean, here's the chismis, which means like gossip in in Tagalog or yeah, well, Filipino really. Uh, there's a difference. Look it up. Um, it, yeah, it, it, it's it, it wasn't perfect, and and no way it was going to be perfect. Um, but I I just. It it was very Filipino, but it, it it also felt like a caricature of being Filipino, um, and that's I think that's that's what was most biggest the biggest disappointment for me. Um, I walked away feeling like, is this is this what people are going to think of Filipinos after watching this movie? Because these things are true, but they're not it's not it's not capturing like the nuances of my identity it's not just that we're loud and we're dramatic like or that that we make a big deal about food um i don't know i it's hard for me to find some of the words around it maybe i need to watch it again to be more informed but i watched it once and i felt like that was enough but like even jokoi not taking off his shoes when he got into the house, that pissed me off. I'm like, what kind of what kind of house is this? <laughs> he didn't take off his shoes. But also, do you think do you think it's more uh well maybe in that one scene, right, where he doesn't take off his shoes, maybe that's a symbolism of him becoming more Americanized, where he doesn't necessarily, you know, care about the roots as much, right? Or maybe just the instance where he's just so preoccupied with, you know, becoming you know, uh, a professional comedian that sometimes he forgets his, you know, his family, right? Like, we're just like, just not in that space. But the other thing that I wanted to also uh, comment on was maybe this was really meant for Filipino, I mean, first and foremost, probably for a Filipino audience, right? So it's meant to be, I think, maybe self-deprecating, right? And it's also because it's made by a comedian, Right. So I think it's also the context in which it was made, right, as well. Um, so I think there's some elements to that where it was more about representation for the Filipino community more so than anything on the big screen. Right. It's more of that cultural moment as a sitcom, uh, just on a movie format. And then secondarily, it's, you know, for other people. But first and foremost, I think it was for largely a Filipino audience. Yeah. I- I mean, thank you for that. Let, let us not discount what what this has done for the Filipino community. They're on the big screen. 
and it it's in your face about it, right? Like it, this is not just Alea Salonga being the voice of Mulan um, and us settling for, oh, but it's an Asian voice who is for an Asian character. Like these are Filipinos playing Filipinos about a Filipino story in a very Filipino part of the Bay Area. Like let's get it. And, and that, that should be celebrated 100%. I'm about it. Like, hey, my food was on screen, you know? I can see your other point too. I understand like how the perception of how it could be seen. And it's just hard to have have it both ways, right? Like one, it probably doesn't help that it's from a comedic angle, right? So if it makes Filipinos laugh, right? You know, it's going to be taken one way. You know, it may, be not be, may not be seen the same way if, our, if you're not Filipino. Like there are certain things that like, for example, the box of, stuff that, you know, they send back to the Philippines, right? Like, you know, I wasn't as familiar with that, but for my girlfriend and her friends, right? Like that was something very personal, right? It was funny for them, right? And they're probably seeing it over the top, but they're also saying, seeing the truth and irony, I think, behind it. Um, so I think it's just a matter of how you absorb the comedy, I guess, and from what perspective you're absorbing it. I think that's how those perspectives could differ. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably coming across way more <laughs> critical than I want to be. I, yeah, I am. I, I don't know any like explicitly Filipino movie, Mike, that I've 100% enjoyed. And I think it's just because I'm harder on, on it. Like I'm, and I, I, I could lighten up. Yeah. I, it, 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 I, I think what I want to do is be able to hold all of it in tension, right? Like I can enjoy and, 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 and appreciate and celebrate the representation of my people in this movie. And I can be critical of it. Like both can be true and exist at the same time. Um, and, and, and that's what will keep us moving forward. Look, that's how I, that's how I felt about crazy, crazy rich Asians. I felt that way about crazy rich Asians. Like as well, I thought it was like, so my ex-girlfriend at the time, she really loved it. And I was just like, it's an okay movie. It's like, it's cool to see, you know, have representation. Uh, she got really mad at me. It's like, how dare you ruin my moment, right? Like don't speak slander against this movie. Um, but you know, story-wise, like, yeah, it's a rom-com. You know, it. there's some parts where you kind of have to just let it go, right? Uh, and, you know, the story is going to take off to where it's going to take off. Like, but it was nice. Like, yeah, you can criticize. I have my thoughts about the movie, but it was just nice to see representation at the same time. So opposing opposites, right, or conflicting views can also be true at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably watch it again on some streaming service. I don't know what streaming service is going to come out. I haven't heard any news about it. Uh, I hope it does come out on a streaming service, to be quite honest. Like, that's probably the best form of distribution now that, like, most, I would assume, Filipinos went to the movies to go see it. Um, and then it's something that, you know, can easily be accessed again. For the record, I went with nine of my family members um so we rolled deep did they enjoy it first and foremost they did so i yeah i went with let's see who it was me my brother my dad my grandmother 
her sister, um, uh, my aunt and her husband. Oh gosh, who else? Um, oh, my, my grandma's brother and his wife. Um, and they're all obviously older generation. They really enjoyed it and laughed. Uh, and it was a, it was an, ex, it was an experience, a Filipino experience itself by going to the movies with them, right? Like they don't go to the movies that often. They're like, I feel like, I feel like that just mirrored, that just mirrored the exact part of the movie, right? Like, cause in the movie is just like a big family kind of getting together. And literally it was just that, like the cultural moment was really brought to life. Uh, so I think that's pretty amazing. Uh, I've heard like, and feel free, like, I'm just curious, like, you know, what does the older Filipino generation just generally think about Joe Coy? Cause he, he's obviously kind of one of like the currently, right. Probably one of the more prominent Filipino, uh, entertainers, right. Or person in entertainment, right. That's visible right now. Right. Like, is it something where they're, you know, they really like him? Like, do they see him like, as like, does the older generation, do they see him as like, Oh, that's like my younger son. Right. Kind of feeling right. Like kind of national treasure, uh, is I'm just curious how different generations sort of view him just, you know, cause he's a guy in his fifties, I believe. And so, you know, he's quite a bit old, a little bit older than, you know, than we are. And so I'm just thinking like generation wise, like there may be either, I'm just curious how they, they view him. Right. Just cause we have one view of him or maybe you have one view of him, but then your grandma or grandparents or parents have a different view of him. Yeah, I will. Well, thank you for couching it that way. I do not speak on behalf of all Filipinos, but I do have data from within my family. And that is data from different aunts, or we call them titas, um, my dad, different people. It's a mixed bag. I think there, I've, I've heard titas be like, oh, I don't think he's that funny. But I like him because he's Filipino. You know, like it's, it's be, because he represents... Filipinos in the community, they have all of the pride in the world. If it was like, if there was a hill to die on about like, you know, which, which celebrities they want, oh, Jokoy because he's Filipino. But if, if it was like, oh, like who has, and, and yeah, like who has the best jokes, they might choose Jokoy just because he's Filipino. But I've heard the same aunt say, but I don't think he's that funny. Like he's just making fun of us. And like, is there not something more original that he could do? Um, so I, I, and I agree with that take too. It's like, could you be a little bit more innovative with your, and, and I haven't yet watched his latest special, which I heard was pretty good and better than Easter Sunday. Um, but I, yeah. And, and then there, I think there are some that don't listen to him at all because they just know that they're not the audience that they don't have the like Filipino American experience. Um, so I think it's, it's across the board. My dad, um, when he watched Easter Sunday, he was like, the funniest part of that movie to me was when Jokoy took the stage at church and basically did a stand up set. Um, and so I, you, you know what I mean? Like it's, I think it's mixed reviews all over. I think Filipinos are just happy to see another Filipino on screen um, and, and that, that, that is fine. That, that is something that Jokoi should celebrate, that the community should celebrate. Um, my grandma, who is a woman of few words, found it very funny and, and liked it and, um, enjoyed the experience. 
but I don't think she takes much pride in 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 like having watched the movie or or knowing that Joe Boy's Filipino. Um, she just was amused. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think going back to your like aunties, um, you know, saying like, oh, he's the hill that I will die on, right? If but his jokes aren't funny. Do you think part of it is also kind of like a status community thing, right? It's like he's someone you can talk about with other people, right? And he's well known enough that you know you can kind of just hang your head on uh, or hang your hat hat on and just say like, hey, like you know, just to just to stay within the community or hold a certain status of like, hey, I'm you know I'm proud to be Filipino. I'm proud of Joe Koi, right? It's like he's just more of that kind of conversation even though that personally they don't think like oh he's not funny like I, maybe there's a duality like to that that's 100 percent. i mean let's rewind to the days of manny pacquiao right like boxing and manny pacquiao being on like the international stage filipinos are so proud of manny pacquiao so when we get someone who's on the international stage like Jokoi, of course, it is it is about a status thing. It's about bringing it up at the hospital that you work at and be like, oh my God, did you watch the Jokoi? Like they're, they're so into it because it's something that they can talk about and it represents like who they are. There, there's a solidarity. There's a I, I, identity. Um, there's a community behind it. So it, it is 100% that, Mike. Um, and you can't fault them for it. Like, let them enjoy it. Let them have that moment, you know? Um, the same thing happened with Jasmine Trias when she was on American Idol years ago. Uh, any kind of Filipino that makes it into, uh, the media and kind of can bring a name will, people will be proud of it. I mean, you have Sweetie, right? Um, hip hop artist, she's half black, half Filipino. Um, big talks about her, of course, her, right? From the Bay Area, half Filipino, half black. I do have a story about that. Uh, I was watching, I think we we're about to watch Easter Sunday, uh, maybe like the week after it came out, or maybe it was the same weekend, I can't remember. And then one of my girlfriend's friends, she was like, did you see Swahidi, Swahidi's like story, right? Like, you know, she's at Sifu City. It's definitely the one, right? Like in some location. And then I... My smart ass just says, like, are you sure it's today? Like, the the story looks kind of overcast. I think it was overcast, like, two days ago. So this is probably a late post. She's like, damn it, probably probably right. Because, like, the movie outside, it was, like, really sunny. And so I might have dashed some dreams of, uh, you know, you know, meeting her or just getting people excited to meet her. But, yeah, like, it, that's just my funny story of co- connecting the two uh, stories. But, yeah. But yeah, go ahead. So you were saying, yeah, I know she's, and and it's cool to see the like them them in in media, right? And like killing it, you know, and and getting getting attention. That that's exciting for us because Filipinos not really on the map, um, and it's it's nice to be on the map. I do want to talk about uh, this one thing that kind of popped up, maybe like I don't know, three months ago, maybe I think maybe right before. Chokoi, you know, I don't know if you heard about uh, what is it like people using Philippine X instead of Filipino. Um, well, first of all, have you heard? Did you did you hear about that? Uh, like kind of 
nuance in terms of the conversation of language and how it's used? Um, I, I'm definitely familiar. I think I've, I've heard it before. I've used the term myself. Um, in my job, I was also kind of helping plan the Filipino American History Month uh, events. And um, there was a big discussion around if we should use Filipinex or Pilipinex uh, versus Filipino. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I think it's an interesting topic. Um, how I've engaged of it, just so the viewers uh, kind of have an idea of what we're talking about. I think there was a movement where people were trying to use Philippinex, right, to be more, you know, gender inclusive. My understanding is that like it was kind of taking what was applied to Latino and Latina and applying Latinx, right? But applying that same kind of uh, logic to to Filipino or to, you know, Filipino, Filipina, right? And just saying Philippine X. But there was apparently like, you know, uh, Filipino in its origin is gender, I believe gender neutral. And so there was kind of a discussion on, you know, whether it should be referred to as Philippine X or just Filipino. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not Filipino, but that's what I've read uh, in terms of the backstory behind it. You got it right, Mike. Um, and and I'd say that, yeah, bringing up the kind of treatment of, of Latino or Latina to Latinx is, I, I think, the right way to go too. Um, and to just kind of cover the, the bases there, even that is in kind of contention, right? Where there are some people who are like, why are we using an X in Latinx? This just feels like, again, another kind of uh, Eurocentric or white-centric way of trying to identify um, people who are either uh, of, of the Latin identity um, by using a, a Western way to do it. Uh, why, why can't we use something that feels more like within the cultural context. So there are some people who opt for Latine um, versus Latinx. Um, and, and that, yeah. And, and I, I think to, to now consider what, what is it for Filipinos and Fili Filipinex versus Filipino and Filipina? I mean, the, it is gender neutral. When, when, when we consider the pronouns within um, Tagalog or Filipino, um, Xia is used as the pronoun. There is no he or her, which is why if you're Filipino and listening to this or understand some Tagalog or hear it, Filipinos of an older generation often get mixed up between he and her or him um, and hers because you do not have to change the pronoun when you're speaking in the language. Um, and so having to do that within English is, can, is take some mental energy and, and code switching really. Now to do to do then like Filipina and Filipino, well, I, I I don't know actually the history of this. My best guess is the introduction of the Spanish gendering and when this when Spain conquered the Philippines, this is where the kind of this distinction has come from. But Filipino itself, for many Filipinos who either live in the diaspora or within the Philippines, this is how they identify. So 
Philippine X feels like a disruption or a departure from what actually feels authentic for them, which is I am Filipino, whether I identify as a woman or a man or trans or however, Filipino does encompass my identity. I think where I stand on this is allow the individual to identify it for themselves, um, but don't don't impose what you think the label should be. And this gets tricky because Philippine X is like, in my case, I'm, I'm using it to label an entire month for the purposes of celebrating it at the company that I work at. Um, but does that mean if I use it that it can't be Filipino or it can't be Filipina? Um, and it started some healthy dialogue, I think. Uh, but this is where I, I think we have to be able to engage with that conversation and respect what an individual might want and, and for them to entertain and accept their, their dissent about it. Um, I, I don't have a particular stance on it. I, I think when I talk about it, I say both and I offer it as offerings for the language. When I talk about, um, yeah, when I talk about Philippine, Filipino stuff, it, depending on my audience, I might be like Filipino or Philippine X and, and, I'll, and I'll share both as, as options so that I acknowledge that there's maybe some people who identify with one label or the other. Um, and it also just opens a conversation and allows for some education. I think that's a very inclusive approach, right? That you're the intent behind that is showing consideration, right? For potentially joining viewpoints, right? Cause like essentially they could be opposing viewpoints, but by acknowledging both, right? You're, it's also validating, let's say, like we acknowledge that these are two viewpoints that can coexist, you know, uh, together. And I wonder if like, you know, because Philippine X is probably a newer uh, term, right? Uh, to use to try to be more include broadly inclusive, I almost feel, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, uh, or if you have a differing viewpoint, it's almost like it's a label to almost like it's a sociological label, right? It's like, how do you define like an, not an era, right? But just like a broad term, but then, you know, a broad term versus what's used personally, right? Or how you identify personally. I still think that's up to the person, like you said. Um, so I wonder if it's just more of like, it's a broad term to, to gen almost generically label because they, someone needs, right? To be able to describe a certain set of, you know, feelings or a con status or a condition of a person, right? Uh, that maybe wasn't necessarily represented in both words. And there's probably arguments you said, like, it doesn't need to be, but, you know, maybe there are some people that feel like uh, there's just isn't that one word, right, to really describe a broader um, phenomenon uh, with a kind of introduction of a new word. So that's kind of where... I can sort of see where the origins are coming from. Uh, but yeah, just that was just my take like on it. I agree with your take. It's, it's a, it's, it's this generation's attempt at, at making sense of, of what they have. Right. Um, I think language will always be imperfect and it's, it's trying, it's trying things out. I mean, language changes over time, right? Like you look at TikTok, right? Like 
God, new words come up all the time. New language comes up all the time. Changes every two weeks, uh, maybe a week if we're lucky. Uh, I know I'm I'm joking around, but I'm also like half serious about it as well. Uh, just as a millennial trying to, you know, just keep up with uh, Gen Z language and lingo. Uh, I think yeah, like language changes, and you know, like you mentioned, I think you might have mentioned before, right? Like words and terms that exist now for a new generation for you know more representation and you know stuff with good intent right you take that to your grandparents or whoever they may have no concept of it whatsoever and it a language sometimes becomes generational like at that point right yep it and we have to make space for it all. It's part of being inclusive. Sometimes there's a you have to draw the line. I mean, I <laughs> I remember my great grandmother, my great grandmother when she was still alive was using words to describe black people in ways that I would never do. Um, <laughs> it's like, is this inclusive to not correct her? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I think my my response then is lean into creating awareness and sharing rather than correcting. Because um, someone has to correct on their own, right? Like you can't force someone. I mean, you can encourage them to correct, right? And you can educate, but you know they have to make you know the decision on their own. I think. Part of it is also like maybe they're in an environment where it's a self echo chamber, right? Like, you know, it, especially for more collective communities, it's harder to break through. They have a different set of, you know, conditions that they've grown up in, different kind of education that's very well rooted, right? And hard to, you know, to change. And I think that's the hardest part, right? Is really I'm trying to understand and speak the language, right? Of, and thoughts of your elders, right? Like, I just imagine that, you know, older Asian people care about status a lot. Like we all, everyone cares about status in a certain level, but for, I feel like for Asians, like that's how they rank themselves, right? Like less about moral good, you know, generally it's like, how does this benefit me within the context of the group, right? Um, kind of thing. and how to communicate through that and use language that they'll understand is I think that's the hard part to crack, right? Because for millennials and, and boomers, right? Like we may use different languages or ideologies might be different. And I think there hasn't really been a good way to communicate in styles that um, resonate uh, with each other's groups, which I think causes a lot of um, tension right? Uh, overall, like, uh, I was watching this show, or I was watching this um, interview with Bowen Yang and Yul Kwan. Uh, so Bowen Yang, obviously Asian comedian. Uh, Yul Kwan, I think winner on Survivor, I think it was like season, I think it was like season three, or something like that. And he was saying how his parents wouldn't acknowledge that he was uh, a Survivor winner. It didn't matter, right? Like, even though he won a million dollars, you know, he was 
on TV. He had his time to shine. Didn't matter, right? But when he was written in his local Korean newspaper that he was a winner, then his parents had something to brag about, right? And that's when they acknowledged it, right? So it's really about meeting parents, I think, at the local level of, you know, having status among their friends, right? Or, you know, kind of how we were saying, we talk about Jokoi, right? Like, they don't think he's funny, but he's my, you know, he's the hero, right? Like, that you're going to hang your hat on, right, if all else fails. So it's really about communication styles, I think, at the end of the day, uh, when communicating between generations. What What's hard is that they, I agree, I why why cannot that that uh i i want i i so badly want these generations to be able to expand what they care about it's hard right because it's so community rooted right like another example I'll use um weddings perfect example right um Oftentimes, depending on your your family's generation, right? Sometimes they'll be more heavy-handed at weddings, right? They'll say like, "You need to have X X Y Z, right? You need to have this, you need to have that, you need to invite this person." You know, do you? Let me ask you this: Do you think it's for the couple's benefit? No. <laughs> Yeah, you know, his benefit is for, it's really just so the parents can show off to other parents, right? To show that, like, they have status, right? Like that, you know, or not they have status, but like, that they're not putting, they're putting on a show, right? Like, they're putting on, like, we can provide, right? It's a, you know, game of song and dance. Um, And that's something that's really important in that's embedded in the culture, right? For some, right? For some generations. Um, and it's just a, it's a communication style. Like with me and my girlfriend, we've talked about, uh, we've talked about like, hey, like, so my family, like they're not really embedded with like, hey, you have to have a Chinese wedding or anything like that. But on top of my girlfriend, I'm like, I already know there's going to be certain things that, you she's gonna want well that her mom's gonna want right and i'm probably gonna have to abide by it right because you know you know is it is she willing to risk her reputation and her relationship with her mom her aunties or uncles over this right and like sometimes you kind of have to cater to it a little bit um not saying that you can't right and you don't have to but there realistically potentially could be consequences, like uh, consequences of maybe I'm being exa- I'm exaggerating a little bit, but maybe disownment or families having a grudge because you made them look bad because there wasn't certain elements that uh, weren't there, right? Maybe in a wedding, right? That you know made them look worse in front of other people. Um, so I think there's like that element of balancing out the reality versus idealism and you know especially in a lot of like asian movies uh asian american movies i have noticed that the parents sometimes do say i love you right or the grandparents say i love you but when i ask like you know other people it's like 
do you if you had your grandma grandparents watch that do you think they'll say i love you it's like no it's just like a lot of it it's ideal right it's idealism versus reality uh and that's either what makes a good story but um but yeah that's that's something i kind of been thinking about i talk about it with my girlfriend sometimes and we talk about the differences between you know the what we want as millennials because obviously a lot of these media stories they're not they're not meant for our grandparents right crazy rich asians aren't isn't meant for our grandparents necessarily like to change their ideals it's really a reflection of what we wish that that we kind of have but it also identifies with the struggles that we have by putting the grandparents like the best and worst qualities right as the characters but also what we idealize kind of sometimes our grandparents, what we want them to be as well. I have so many thoughts right now. Um... <laughs> but yeah, that was my, that was my take. Yeah, man. I'm, um, many thoughts on weddings. I, I appreciate your take. And I, I think it's humbling for me to hear that that's, yeah, just part of your calculus of, well, what, what, what things will I be able to negotiate and, and what is it that I, or that you have to, I, I, you know, abide by. I, when I, when I think about my proverbial wedding in the future, I, I actually very much am about, Oh, a, kind of this collectivist perspective um, that a wedding is not all about me and the bride. It is absolutely about the family. And I think it can be seen from the perspective of, yeah, like people got to save face and, and and this is about protecting and communicating one's status. But I also see it from the perspective of honoring the people who you have invited and who have helped raise you and get you to where you are now. Um, I have experienced weddings where I have been quite disappointed in how they have not kind of considered the the family aspect of it. Um, and it's been, I don't know, it has kind of, it has kind of weighed heavy on me. Um, and that's just how I, I, I see family gatherings as it is not about any one or two particular people. There's a reason why people are invited and it's because we take care of each other. Um, and so I think it's, it's just a part of the whole of it. It's because of the money, right? Like I hear in back channels, right? Like, oh, invite your rich aunt, invite this person. They're rich, right? Invite this person, right? They'll give you more money, right? For your wedding, right? Like it also becomes like this, you know, strategic economic element uh, as well. Not to derail from like, you know, honoring family and stuff like that. Um, but there is also kind of the, the family politics uh, and strategizing you know, behind it. hundred uh, percent. One thing I was thinking about recently was, I don't know. Have you seen Encanto? I have. Yes. I recently just saw it. Uh, I saw, I recently just saw it. Uh, and it really made, cause you know, the whole story is about family, right? And there's obviously intergenerational trauma uh, there's a relationship between the abuela and uh, Maribel and the rest of her family. And the interesting thing that got me thinking about family was that it's both supportive 
and constrictive, right? At the same time, like it can be both. And I think it's really about managing, it's managing both sides of it. Like, and especially because we live in America, I think that also adds another complexity to it. And I was talking about this with my girlfriend recently too, which was here in America, you can be individualistic, right? Like if you wanted to discard your family, not discard your family, but if you wanted to like be your own person and you wanted to survive on your own and, you know, have an estranged relationship with your family in order to do what you want to do, right? Like, you know, you can do it, right? Like it's part of being an individualistic culture. Um, but like, let's say if the same person, you know, grew up, I don't know, let's just say in the Philippines, for example, you're not in a culture that would encourage that, right? Like, cause you would still need your family for a lot of things. And I think it's so interesting, you know, as Asian Americans that we live in this duality of opposing, almost opposing ideals. And sometimes it's hard to find that common ground for people of different generations to understand each other. Um, just from those viewpoints. I appreciate that perspective. Anyways, I do want to start to wrap it up. I know we had quite a long interview. Uh, I do want to ask if you have any advice for young people. Talk to the old folks. And by old, I don't mean just like people who are a few years older than you. Uh, but listen to the stories of of people who are significantly older than you your grandparents your great grandparents if you have access to them um or if you don't have your grandparents around spend time with older people um maybe i just have a an affinity to people who are senior citizens but i love hearing stories and some of the best advice and stories and lessons learned have come from people who have just lived more life. And I think it is uh, such a gift to have people who have been around here longer to just share their experiences. They've, they've seen a lot and they've gone through a lot. And so they have a lot of wisdom to share and a perspective that we don't get to hear often because media and social life as we know it as young people does not really make space for older folks. So I think it's a perspective that is often unique amongst young people because we just don't make a lot of space for older folks. So talk to them, make time. Maybe it's volunteering. Maybe it's just calling your grandparents. Um, for me, it's a, also a, a chance to practice language. I, I was not raised speaking Tagalog or Filipino. Uh, I picked it up by watching the Filipino channel and spending time with my grandparents. And when I'm with my grandma, I'd say we speak maybe 70% in Tagalog and 30% in English. And as someone who loves languages and, and, and just wants to engage with my grandma more, it, it's great. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'd say go talk to, to the older generations, y'all. Um, your older self will thank you. I definitely agree with that. I think especially like in your early 20s and 30s, it's really easy to be stuck in uh, Instagram, TikTok bubble, um, you know, because all the content is very curated, you know, towards 
your what's your likes, right? Your interests, and sometimes you need a different perspective. And I think it is important to have friends in different age groups. And oftentimes, if you hear the same kind of advice from different age groups, like whether it's like your grandparents, people that are a little bit younger than your parents, uh, maybe even your parents to a certain perspective, like you start to hear common threads, right, across different age groups that maybe wouldn't be necessarily accepted, you know, in your 20 or 30 year old, like age group. Uh, so I think that's something that's really important as well. Uh, I also just wanted to add on to that. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, just one more thing is, uh, I don't know, I, I kind of have a informal board of directors for my life, I'm like trusted individuals, friends um, that, yeah, I, I turn to for kind of counsel or advice or when I'm at like big inflection points, um, I consider them or consult them. And there are varying ages. There are aunts that I consult. There are people of my age. There are younger folks. And it's just helpful to to have the differing perspectives um, to inform you and to guide you. So plus one on that, Mike. Yeah. Cool. Well, Christian, I wanted to thank you for coming on to this podcast. I know it's been quite a long one, uh, but I really appreciate you having, on, having you on here. Uh, talking about all things dance, uh, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, about the music scene and your experience as a, a Filipino American. Uh, you know, it was a great, it was a great talk, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and I appreciate you having on being on this podcast. Mike, as always, um, have appreciated your intentionality and uh, yeah, ability to navigate a conversation that allows at least me to feel like I can share authentically and openly so thanks for the opportunity and if there's another round to do it you can count me 